Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Negroes, niggers, black men, and the African-American. It was the end of World War II and the times were tumultuous. The United States was on a high stemming from the successful defeat of Germany and Japan. But times were not high in spirited for the African American in the United States. The American Negro returned to the same racist Jim Crow infested America they left when they went to fight the war. Ralph Ellison, like many who served, was profoundly affected by his experiences. He, like many others, had, was awakened by the European treatment of the black man. For many years before World War II, African-American entertainers recognized that the worldview of the black man in America was far different than the way American whites viewed and treated them. More inclusive, far less prejudiced, and not segregated, many had the opportunity to see equal treatment for the first time. Entertainers such as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Josephine Baker flocked to Europe because of the better treatment they received. For many African-American men, Returning from the war, this equal treatment was eye-opening and made a profound and lasting impression. Ralph Ellison was no different. Ellison, while on leave from the Coast Guard, began to write The Invisible Man in a Vermont barn. The year was 1945. Behind the scenes, the world was a rapidly changing place. This was especially true of the black man and woman of America, and particularly those in Harlem. And Harlem was the home of Ralph Ellison. By the 1930s and 40s, it had become the black capital of America. It was during the Harlem Renaissance that Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and other writers laid the mental seeds for change in the minds of the Negro. Harlem was a place of open discussion. In Harlem, a multitude of social and political organizations vied for the attention and ear of the black community. Groups such as Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association, the Nation of Islam, the NAACP, Communist Party affiliate groups, and militant civil rights organizations brought a change to the lexicon of America. This change in nomenclature did not go unnoticed by Ellison. You can see and hear its introduction throughout The Invisible Man. Though it is not, in most instances, blatant, it can be found in scenes like the narrator's trip with Mr. Morton and during the address given by Homer A. Barbie. These examples are just a few. 
Ellison moves smoothly from nigger to negro to black man. He deftly uses the appropriate name at just the right time and in the correct place. Until the period of the 1920s and 30s, the descendants of slaves were identified as niggers and negroes. And while the black man never took to being called nigger, until recent history, but that's another story, the widely accepted identifier was negro. In fact, it was so widely accepted that most African Americans took offense if they were identified by any other nomenclature. Calling a man black was a quick way to get yourself slapped in the mouth, my father once told me. The NAACP, the UNIA called the African American Negro and used the name Negro throughout their literature. It was the more militant civil rights groups that began to pen the identifying label of the black man. These organizations fed the appetite for radical change for the African American. Ellison's Invisible Man was written like an episode of Law and Order. Many of the scenes were gleaned directly from the events of the history of Harlem. For example, the riot that took place in Invisible Man was based on the Harlem race riots of 1935 and 1943. It was the shooting of a black soldier by a Harlem policeman that led to the second race riot in 1943. In 1935, a young Puerto Rican boy was caught shoplifting on 125th Street at the Crest Five and Dime store. The boy was roughed up by a store employee. But by the time the story spread through the streets, it had changed to the story that the boy had been killed. Two militant groups, the Young Communist League and the Young Liberators, took advantage of the rumored killings of this young boy as fuel to incite the community to riot. These riots had a devastating effect on Harlem. Both the Young Communist League and the Young Liberators are the basis of the Brotherhood and Rasta Destroyers groups in the book. It was groups like these that began bend and give voice to the vernacular of the black man context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, July 6th, 2018. So I have been told, I hope everyone survived the so-called horror day intact. Moving along constructively with our summer. This is the book club our 10th study session on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Gus T. Renegade's all-time favorite. We're picking up on chapter 19. Last week, the protagonist, he was placed under suspicion. Uh, Brother Restrum, black male in the Brotherhood, accused him of having his own personal agenda of trying to use the brotherhood to advance his personal career and so the whites in charge have demoted him he's been booted out of his harlem office and now he's got to go work on the woman's question or the woman question that's the way it's phrased folks have a thought on that feel free to share the audio clip that you heard i think giving great background information for uh, a lot of what's going on at this point in the narrative. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a slight spoiler for the next book. I think Zora Neale Hurston was mentioned, foreshadowing to the next book. Anyway, we will go ahead and get started. Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, Context of White Supremacy, picking up Chapter 19. I went to my first lecture with a sense of excitement. The theme was a surefire guarantee of audience interest and the rest was up to me. 
If only I were a foot taller and a hundred pounds heavier, I could simply stand before them with a sign across my chest stating, I know all about them, and they'd be as awed as though I were the original boogeyman, somehow transformed and domesticated. I'd no more have to speak than Paul Robeson had to act. They'd simply thrill at the sight of me. And it went well enough. They made a success through their own enthusiasm, and the barrage of questions afterwards left no doubts in my mind. It was only after the meeting was breaking up that there came the developments which even my volatile suspicions hadn't allowed me to foresee. I was exchanging greetings with the audience when she appeared, the kind of woman who glows as though consciously acting a symbolic role of life and feminine fertility. Her problem, she said, had to do with certain aspects of our ideology. It's rather involved, really, she said with concern, and while I shouldn't care to take up your time, I have a feeling that you... No, oh no, not at all, I said, guiding her away from the others to stand near a partly uncoiled fire hose hanging beside the entrance. Not at all. But brother, she said, it's, it's really so late, and, and you must be tired. My problem can wait until some other time. I'm not that tired, I said. And if there's something bothering you, it's my duty to do what I can to clear it up. But it's quite late, she said. Perhaps some evening when you're not busy, you'll drop in to see us. Then we could talk at greater length. Uh, unless, of course. Unless? Unless, she smiled, I can induce you to stop by this evening. I might add that I serve a fair cup of coffee. Then I'm at your service, I said, pushing open the door. Her apartment was located in one of the better sections of the city, and I must have revealed my surprise upon entering the spacious living room. You can see, brother, the glow she gave the word was disturbing. It is really the spiritual values of brotherhood that interest me. Through no effort of my own, I have economic security and leisure. But what is that, really, when so much is wrong with the world? I mean when there is no spiritual or emotional security and no justice. She was slipping out of her coat now, looking earnestly into my face, and I thought, is she a salvationist, a Puritan with reverse English? Remembering Brother Jack's private description of wealthy members who, he said, sought political salvation by contributing financially to the Brotherhood. She was going a little fast for me, and I looked at her gravely. I can see that you've thought deeply about this thing, I said. I've tried, she said, and it's most perplexing. But make yourself comfortable while I put away my things. She was a small, delicately plump woman with raven hair in which a thin streak of white had begun almost imperceptibly to show. And when she reappeared in the rich red of a hostess gown, she was so striking that I had to avert my somewhat startled eyes. What a beautiful room you have here, I said, looking across the rich cherry glow of furniture to see a life-sized painting of a nude, a pink Renoir. Other canvases were hung here and there, and the spacious walls seemed to flash alive with warm, pure color. What does one say to all this, I thought, looking at an abstract fish of polished brass mounted on a piece of ebony. I'm glad you find it pleasant, brother, she said. We like it ourselves, though I must say that... Hubert finds so little time to enjoy it. He's much too busy. Hubert, I said, 
My husband. Unfortunately, he had to leave. He would have loved to have met you, but then he's always dashing off. Business, you know. I suppose it's unavoidable, I said with sudden discomfort. Yes, it is, she said. But we're going to discuss brotherhood and ideology, aren't we? And there was something about her voice and her smile that gave me a sense of both comfort and excitement. It was not merely the background of wealth and gracious living to which I was alien, but simply the being there with her and the sensed possibility of a heightened communication, as though the discordantly invisible and the conspicuously enigmatic were reaching a delicately balanced harmony. She's rich, but human, I thought, watching the smooth play of her relaxed hands. There are so many aspects to the movement, I said. Just where shall we start? Perhaps it's something that I'm unable to handle. Oh, it's nothing that profound, she said. I'm sure you'll straighten out my little ideological twists and turns. But sit here on the sofa, brother. It's more comfortable. I sat seeing her go toward a door, the train of her gown trailing sensuously over the oriental carpet. Then she turned and smiled. Perhaps you'd prefer wine or milk instead of coffee. Wine, thank you. I said, finding the idea of milk strangely repulsive. This isn't at all what I expected, I thought. She returned with a tray holding two glasses and a decanter, placing them before us on a low cocktail table, and I could hear the wine trickle musically into the glasses, one of which she placed in front of me. Here's to the movement, she said, raising her glass with smiling eyes. To the movement, I said, and to brotherhood and to brotherhood. This is very nice, I said, seeing her nearly closed eyes, her chin tilting upward toward me, but just what phase of our ideology should we discuss? All of it, she said. I wish to embrace the whole of it. Life is so terribly empty and disorganized without it. I sincerely believe that only brotherhood offers any hope of making life worth living again. Oh, I know that it's too vast a philosophy to grasp immediately, as it were. Still, it's so vital and alive that one gets the feeling that one should at least make the try. Don't you agree? Well, yes, I said. It's the most meaningful thing that I know. Oh, I'm so pleased to have you agree with me. I suppose that's why I always thrill to hear you speak. Somehow you convey the great throbbing vitality of the movement. It's really amazing. You give me such a feeling of security. Although... She interrupted herself with a mysterious smile. I must confess that you also make me afraid. Afraid? You can't mean that, I said. Really, she repeated as I laughed. It's so powerful, so, so primitive. I felt some of the air escape from the room, leaving it unnaturally quiet. You don't mean primitive, I said. Yes, primitive. No one has told you, brother, that at times you have tom-toms beating in your voice? My God, I laughed. I thought that was the beat of my profound ideas. Oh, of course, you're correct, she said. I don't mean really primitive. I suppose I mean forceful, powerful. It takes hold of one's emotions as well as one's intellect. Call it what you will, it has so much naked power that it goes straight through one. I tremble just to think of such vitality. I looked at her so close now that I could see a single jet-black strand of out-of-place hair. Yes, I said, the emotion is there, but it's actually our scientific approach that releases it. 
As Brother Jack says, we're nothing if not organizers. And the emotion isn't merely released, it's guided, channelized. That is the real source of our effectiveness. After all, this very good wine can release emotion, but I doubt seriously that it can organize anything. She leaned gracefully forward, her arm along the back of the sofa, saying, Yes, and you do both in your speeches. One just has to respond, even when one isn't too clear as to your meaning. Only I do know what you're saying, and that's even more inspiring. Actually, you know, I'm as much affected by the audience as it is by me. Its response helps me do my best. And there's another important aspect, she said, one which concerns me greatly. It provides women with the full opportunity for self-expression, which is so very important, brother. It's as though every day were leap year, which is as it should be. Women should be absolutely as free as men. And if I were really free, I thought, lifting my glass, I'd get the hell out of here. I thought you were exceptionally good tonight. It's time the woman had a champion in the movement. Until tonight, I'd always heard you on minority problems. This is a new assignment, I said. But from now on, one of our main concerns is to be the woman question. That's wonderful, and it's about time. Something has to give women an opportunity to come to close grips with life. Please, go on. Tell me your ideas, she said, pressing forward her hand light upon my arm. And I went on talking, relieved to talk, carried away by my own enthusiasm and by the warmth of the wine. And it was only when I turned to ask a question of her that I realized that she was leaning only a nose tip away, her eyes upon my face. Go on, please, go on, I heard. You make it sound so clear. Please. I saw the rapid, moth-wing fluttering of her lids become the softness of her lips as we were drawn together. There was not an idea or concept in it, but sheer warmth. Then the bell was ringing, and I shook it off and got to my feet, hearing it ring again as she arose with me, the red robe falling in heavy folds upon the carpet, and she sang, You make it all so wonderfully alive, as the bell sounded again. And I was trying to move to get out of the apartment, looking for my hat and filling with anger, thinking, Is she crazy? Doesn't she hear? as she stood before me in bewilderment as though I were acting irrationally and now taking my arm with sudden energy saying, this way, in here, almost pulling me along as the bell rang again through a door down a short hall, a satiny bedroom in which she stood appraising me with a smile saying, this is mine, as I looked at her in outrageous disbelief. Yours? Yours? But what about that bell? Never mind, she cooed, looking into my eyes. But be reasonable, I said, pushing her aside. What about the door? Oh, of course you mean the telephone, don't you, darling? But your old man, your husband, in Chicago? But he might not. No, no, darling, he won't. But he might. But brother, darling, I talked with him, I know. Y you what? W what kind of game is this? Oh, you poor darling. It isn't a game. Really, you have no cause to worry. We're free. He's in Chicago seeking his lost youth, no doubt. She said, bursting into laughter of self-surprise. <laughs> He's not at all interested in uplifting things. Freedom and necessity, women's rights and all that. You know, the sickness of our class. Brother, darling. I took a step across the room. There was another door to my left through which I saw the gleam of chromium and tile. Brotherhood, darling, she said gripping my biceps with her little hands. Teach me. 
talk to me. Teach me the beautiful ideology of brotherhood. And I wanted both to smash her and to stay with her. And I knew that I should do neither. Was she trying to ruin me? Or was this a trap set by some secret enemy of the movement waiting outside the door with cameras and wrecking bars? You should answer the phone, I said with forced calm, trying to release my hands without touching her, for if I touched her. And you'll continue, she said. I nodded, seeing her turn without a word and go toward a vanity with a large oval mirror, taking up an ivory telephone. And in the mirrored instant, I saw myself standing between her eager form and a huge white bed. Myself caught in a guilty stance, my face taut, tie dangling, and behind the bed, another mirror, which now, like a surge of the sea, tossed our images back and forth, back and forth, furiously multiplying the time and the place and the circumstance. My vision seemed to pulse alternately clear and vague, driven by a furious bellows as her lips said soundlessly, I'm sorry, and then impatiently into the telephone, Yes, this is she, and then to me again, smiling as she covered the mouthpiece with her hand, It's only my sister, it'll only take a second and my mind whirled with forgotten stories of male servants summoned to wash the mistress's back, chauffeurs sharing the master's wives, pullman porters invited into the drawing room of rich wives headed for Reno, thinking, but this is the movement, the brotherhood. And now I saw her smile, saying, Yes, Gwen, dear, yes. As one free hand went up as though to smooth her hair, and in one swift motion the red robe swept aside like a veil and I went breathless at the petite and generously curved nude, framed delicate and firm in the glass. It was like a dream interval, and in an instant it swung back, and I saw only her mysteriously smiling eyes above the rich red robe. I was heading for the door, torn between anger and fierce excitement, hearing the phone click down as I started past and feeling her swirl against me, and I was lost for the conflict between the ideological and the biological duty and desire had become too subtly confused. I went to her thinking, let them break down the door, whosoever will, let them come. I didn't know whether I was uh, awake or dreaming. It was dead quiet, yet I was certain that there had been a noise and that it had come from across the room as she, beside me, made a soft sighing sound. It was strange. My mind revolved. I was chased out of a chinkapin woods by a bull. I ran up a hill. The whole hill heaved. I heard the sound and looked up to see the man looking straight at me from where he stood in the dim light of the hall, looking in with neither interest nor surprise. His face expressionless, his eyes staring. There was the sound of even breathing. Then I heard her stir beside me. Oh, hello, dear, she said, her voice sounding far away. Back so soon? Yes, he said. Wake me early. I have a lot to do. I'll remember, dear, she said sleepily. Have a good night's rest. Night? <laughs> and you too, he said with a short, dry laugh. The door closed. I lay there in the dark for a while, breathing rapidly was strange. I reached out and touched her. There was no answer. I leaned over her, feeling her breath breezing warm and pure against my face. I wanted to linger there, experiencing the sensation of something precious, 
perilously attained too late, and now to be lost forever. A poignancy. But it was as though she'd never been awake, and if she should awaken now, she'd scream, shriek. I slid hurriedly from the bed, keeping my eye on that part of the darkness from where the light had come, as I tried to find my clothes. I blundered around, finding a chair, an empty chair. Where were my clothes? What a fool. Why had I gotten myself into such a situation? I felt my way naked through the darkness, found the chair with my clothes, dressed hurriedly, and slipped out, halting only at the door to look back through the dim light from the hall. She slept without sigh or smile. A beautiful dreamer, one ivory arm flung above her jet-black head. My heart pounded as I closed the door and went down the hall, expecting the man, men, crowds to halt me. Then I was taking the stairs. The building was quiet. In the lobby, the doorman dozed, his starched bib buckling beneath his chin with his breathing, his white head bare. I reached the street limp with perspiration, still unsure whether I had seen the man or had dreamed him. Could I have seen him without his seeing me? Or again, had he seen me and been silent out of sophistication, decadence, over-civilization? I hurried down the street, my anxiety growing with each step. Why hadn't he said something, recognized me, cursed me, attacked me, or at least been outraged with her? What if it were a test to discover how I would react to such pressure? It was, after all, a point upon which our enemies would attack us violently. I walked in a sweat of agony. Why did they have to mix their women into everything? Between us and everything we wanted to change in the world, they placed a woman. Socially, politically, economically. Why, goddammit, why did they insist upon confusing the class struggle with the ass struggle, debasing both us and them, all human motives? All the next day I was in a state of exhaustion, waiting tensely for the plan to be revealed. Now I was certain that the man had been in the doorway, a man with a briefcase who had looked in and given no definite sign that he had seen me, a man who had spoken like an indifferent husband, but who yet seemed to recall to me some important member of the Brotherhood, someone so familiar that my failure to identify him was driving me almost to distraction. My work lay untouched before me. Each ring of the telephone filled me with dread. I toyed with Tarp's leg chain. If they don't call by four o'clock, I'm saved, I told myself. But still no sign, not even a call to a meeting. Finally, I rang her number, hearing her voice delighted, gay, and discreet, but no mention of the night or the man. And hearing her so composed and gay, I was too embarrassed to bring it up. Perhaps this was the sophisticated and civilized way. Perhaps he was there and they had an understanding, a woman with full rights. Would I return for further discussion, she wanted to know. Yes, of course, I said. Oh, brother, she said. I hung up with a mixture of relief and anxiety, unable to shrug off the notion that I had been tested and had failed. I went through the next week puzzling over it and even more confused because I knew nothing definite of where I stood. I tried to detect changes in my relations with Brother Jack and the others, but they gave no sign. And even if they had, I wouldn't have known its definite meaning, for it might have had to do with the charges. I was caught between guilt 
and innocence, so that now they seemed one and the same. My nerves were in a state of constant tension. My face took on a stiff, non-committal expression, beginning to look like Brother Jack's and the other leaders. Then I relaxed a bit. Work had to be done, and I would play the waiting game. And despite my guilt and uncertainty, I learned to forget that I was a lone, guilty black brother and to go striding confidently into a room full of whites. It was chin-up, a not-too-wide stretched smile, the out-thrust hand for the firm, warm handshake, and with it just the proper mixture of arrogance and down-to-earth humility to satisfy all. I threw myself into the lectures, defending, asserting the rights of women, and though the girls continued to buzz around, I was careful to keep the biological and the ideological carefully apart, which wasn't always easy, for it was as though many of the sisters were agreed among themselves, and I assumed that I accepted it that the ideological was merely a superfluous veil for the real concerns of life. I found that most downtown audiences seemed to expect some unnamed something whenever I appeared. I could sense it the moment I stood before them, and it had nothing to do with anything I might say, for I had merely to appear before them, and from the moment they turned their eyes upon me, they seemed to undergo a strange unburdening, not of laughter, nor of tears, nor of any stable, unmixed emotion. I didn't get it, and my guilt was aroused. Once in the middle of a passage, I looked into the sea of faces and thought, Do they know? Is that it? And almost ruined my lecture. But of one thing I was certain. It was not the same attitude they held for certain other black brothers who entertained them with stories so often that they laughed even before these fellows opened their mouths. No, it was something else. A form of expectancy, a mood of waiting, a hoping for something like justification, as though they expected me to be more than just another speaker or an entertainer. Something seemed to occur that was hidden from my own consciousness. I acted out a pantomime more eloquent than my most expressive words. I was a partner to it, but could no more fathom it than I could the mystery of the man in the doorway. Perhaps, I told myself, it's in your voice, after all. In your voice and in their desire to see in you a living proof of their belief in brotherhood. And to ease my mind, I stopped thinking about it. Then one night, when... I had fallen asleep while making notes for a new series of lectures. The phone summoned me to an emergency meeting at headquarters, and I left the house with feelings of dread. This is it, I thought. Either the charges or the woman. To be tripped up by a woman. What would I say to them? That she was irresistible and I human? What had that to do with responsibility, with, with building brotherhood? It was all I could do to make myself go. I arrived late. The room was sweltering. Three small fans stirred the heavy air, and the brothers sat in their shirt sleeves around a scarred table upon which a pitcher of ice water glistened with beads of moisture. Brothers, I I'm sorry I'm late, I apologized. There were some important last-minute details concerning tomorrow's lecture that kept me. Then you might have saved yourself the trouble and the committee this lost time, Brother Jack said. I don't understand you, I said, suddenly feverish. He means that you are no longer to concern yourself with the woman question. That's ended, Brother Tobit said, and I braced myself for the attack. 
but before I could respond, Brother Jack fired a startling question at me. What has become of Brother Todd Clifton? Brother Clifton? Why, I haven't seen him in weeks. I've been too busy downtown here. What's, what's happened? He has disappeared, Brother Jack said. Disappeared. So don't waste time with superfluous questions. You weren't sent for, for that. But how long has this been known? Brother Jack struck the table. All we know is that he's gone. Let's get on with our business. You, brother, are to return to Harlem immediately. We're facing a crisis there, since Brother Todd Clifton has not only disappeared but failed in his assignment. On the other hand, Ross the Exhorter and his gang of racist gangsters are taking advantage of this and are increasing their agitation. You are to get back there and take measures to regain our strength in the community. You'll be given the forces you'll need and you'll report to us for a strategy meeting about which you'll be notified tomorrow. And please, he emphasized with his gavel, be on time. I was so relieved that none of my own problems were discussed that I didn't linger to ask if the police had been consulted about the disappearance. Something was wrong with the whole deal, for Clifton was too responsible and had too much to gain simply to have disappeared. Did it have any connection with Rost the Exhorter? That seemed unlikely. Harlem was one of our strongest districts, and just a month ago when I was shifted, Ross would have been laughed off the street had he tried to attack us. If only I hadn't been so careful not to offend the committee, I would have kept in closer contact with Clifton and the whole Harlem membership. Now, it was as though I had been suddenly awakened from a deep sleep. I had been away long enough for the streets to seem strange. The uptown rhythms were slower and yet were somehow faster. A different tension was in the hot night air. I made my way through the summer crowds, not to the district, but to Barrel House's Jolly Dollar, a dark hole of a bar and grill on Upper 8th Avenue, where one of my best contacts, Brother Maceo, could usually be found about this time having his evening's beer. Looking through the window, I could see men in working clothes and a few rummy women leaning at the bar. Down the aisle between the bar and the counter were a couple of men in black and blue checked sport shirts eating barbecue. A cluster of men and women hovered near the jukebox at the rear. But when I went in, Brother Maceo wasn't among them, and I pushed to the bar, deciding to wait over a beer. Good evening, brothers, I said, finding myself between two men whom I'd seen around before, only to have them look at me oddly, the eyebrows of the tall one rising at a drunken angle as he looked at the other. Shit, the tall man said. You said it, man. He's a relative of yon. Shit, he goddamn sure ain't no kin of mine. I turned and looked at them, the room suddenly clouding. He must be drunk, the second man said. Maybe he thinks he's kin to you. Then his whiskey telling him a damn lie. I wouldn't be his kin even if I was. Hey, Barrel House. I moved away down the bar, looking at them out of a feeling of suspense. They didn't sound drunk, and I had said nothing to offend, and I was certain that they knew who I was. What was it? The Brotherhood greeting was as familiar as, Give me some skin, or peace, it's wonderful. I saw Barrel House rolling down from the other end of the bar, his white apron indented by the tension of its cord, so that it looked like the kind of metal beer barrel which has a groove around its middle. And seeing me now, he began to smile. 
Well, I'll be damned if it ain't the good brother, he said, stretching out his hand. Brother, where you been keeping yourself? I've been working downtown, I said, feeling a surge of gratitude. Fine, fine, Barrelhouse said. Business good? I'd rather not discuss it, brother. Business is bad, very bad. I'm sorry to hear it. You better give me a beer, I said, after you've served these gentlemen. I watched them in the mirror. Sure thing, Barrelhouse said, reaching for a glass and drawing a beer. What you putting down, old man, he said to the tall man. Look here, Barrel. We wanted to ask you one question, the tall one said. We just wanted to know if you could tell us just whose brother this here cat's supposed to be. Now, he come in here just calling everybody brother. He's my brother, Barrel said, holding the foaming glass between his fingers. Anything wrong with that? Look, fella, I said down the bar, that's our way of speaking. Uh, I meant no harm in calling you brother. I'm sorry. You misunderstood me. Brother, here's your beer, Barrelhouse said. So he's your brother, eh, Barrel? Barrel's eyes narrowed as he pressed his huge chest across the bar, looking suddenly sad. You enjoying yourself, McAdams, he said gloomily. You like your beer? Show, McAdams said. It cold enough. Show, but Barrel. You like the groovy music on the jukebox, Barrel said. Hell yes, but... And you like a good, clean, sociable atmosphere? Show, but that ain't what I'm talking about, the man said. Yeah, but that's what I'm talking about, Barrel House said mournfully. And if you like it, like it, and don't start trying to bug my other customers. This here man's done more for the community than you'll ever do. What community? McAdams said, cutting his eyes around toward me. I hear he got the white fever and left. You liable to hear anything, Barrelhouse said. There's some paper back there in the gents' room. You ought to wipe out your ears. Never mind my ears. Oh, come on, Mac, his friend said. Forget it. Ain't the man done apologized? I said, never mind my ears, McAdams said. You just tell your brother he ought to be careful about who he claims as kinfolk. Some of us don't think so much about his kind of politics. I looked from one to the other. I considered myself beyond the stage of street fighting, and one of the worst things I could do upon returning to the community was to engage in a brawl. I looked at McAdams and was glad when the other man pushed him down the bar. That McAdams thinks he's tight, Barrelhouse said. He's the kind can't nobody please. Be frank, though, there's lots feel like that now. I shook my head in bafflement. I'd never met that kind of antagonism before. What's happened to Brother Maceo, I said. I don't know, brother. He don't come in so regular these days. Things are kind of changing up here. Ain't much money floating around. Times are hard everywhere, but... What's been going on up here, Barrel? I said. Oh, you know how it is, brother. Things are tight. Lots of people who got jobs through you people have lost them. And you know how it goes. You mean people in our organization? Quite a few of them are. Fellows like Brother Maceo. But why? They were doing all right. Sure, they was. As long as you people was fighting for them, the minute y'all stopped, they started throwing folks out on the street. I looked at him big and sincere before me. It was unbelievable that the Brotherhood had stopped its work, and yet he wasn't lying. Give me another beer, I said. 
Then someone called him from the back, and he drew the beer and left. I drank it slowly, hoping Brother Maceo would appear before I had finished. When he didn't, I waved to Barrel House and left for the district. Perhaps Brother Tarp could explain, or at least tell me something about Clifton. I walked through the dark block over to 7th and started down. Things were beginning to look serious. Along the way, I saw not a single sign of brotherhood activity. In a hot side street, I came upon a couple striking matches along the curb, kneeling as though looking for a lost coin, the matches flaring dimly in their faces. Then I found myself in a strangely familiar block and broke out in a sweat. I had almost walked to Mary's door and turned now and hurried away. Barrel House had prepared me for the darkened windows of the district, but not when I let myself in to call in vain through the dark to Brother Tarp. I went to the room where he slept, but he was not there. Then I went through the dark hall to my old office and threw myself into my desk chair, exhausted. Everything seemed to be slipping away from me, and I could find no quick absorbing action that would get it under control. I tried to think of whom among the district committee I might call for information concerning Clifton. But here again... I was balked, for if I selected one who believed that I had requested to be transferred because I hated my own people, it would only complicate matters. No doubt there would be some who'd resent my return, so it was best to confront them all at once without giving any one of them the opportunity to organize any sentiment against me. It was best that I talk with Brother Tarp, whom I trusted. When he came in, he could give me an idea of the state of affairs and perhaps tell me what had actually happened to Clifton. But Brother Tarp didn't arrive. I went out and got a container of coffee and returned to spend the night poring over the district's records. When he hadn't returned by 3 a.m., I went to his room and took a look around. It was empty. Even the bed was gone. I'm all alone, I thought. A lot has occurred about which I wasn't told, something that had not only stifled the members' interest, but which according to the records, had sent them away in droves. Barrelhouse had said that the organization had quit fighting, and that was the only explanation I could find for Brother Tarp's leaving. Unless, of course, he'd had disagreements with Clifton or some of the other leaders. And now, returning to my desk, I noticed his gift of Douglas's portrait was gone. I felt in my pocket for the leg chain. At least I hadn't forgotten to take that along. I pushed the records aside. They told me nothing of why things were as they were. Picking up the telephone, I called Clifton's number, hearing it ring on and on. Finally, I gave it up and went to sleep in my chair. Everything had to wait until the strategy meeting. Returning to the district was like returning to a city of the dead. Somewhat to my surprise, there were a good number of members in the hall when I awoke and having no directives from the committee on how to proceed, I organized them into teams to search for Brother Clifton. Not one could give me any definite information. Brother Clifton had appeared at the district as usual up to the time of his disappearance. There had been no quarrels with committee members, and he was as popular as ever. Nor had there been any clashes with Ross the Exhorter, although in the past week he had been increasingly active. As for the loss of membership and influence, it was a result of a new program which had called for the shelving of our old techniques of agitation. There had been, to my surprise, a switch in emphasis from local issues to those more national and international in scope, and it was felt that for the moment 
the interests of Harlem were not of first importance. I didn't know what to make of it, since there had been no such change of program downtown. Clifton was forgotten. Everything which I was to do now seemed to depend upon getting an explanation from the committee, and I waited with growing agitation to be called to the strategy meeting. Such meetings were usually held around one o'clock, and we were notified well ahead. But by 11.30, I received no word, and I became worried. By 12, an uneasy sense of isolation took hold of me. Something was cooking, but what? How? Why? Finally, I phoned headquarters, but could reach none of the leaders. What is this, I wondered. Then I called the leaders of other districts with the same results. And now I was certain that the meeting was being held. But why without me? Had they investigated Restrum's charges and decided they were true? It seemed that the membership had fallen off after I had gone downtown, or was it the woman? Whatever it was, now was not the time to leave me out of a meeting. Things were too urgent in the district. I hurried down to headquarters. When I arrived, the meeting was in session, just as I expected, and word had been left that it was not to be disturbed by anyone. It was obvious that they hadn't forgotten to notify me. I left the building in a rage. Very well, I thought. When they do decide to call me, they'll have to find me. I should have never been shifted in the first place, and now that I was sent back to clean up the mess, they should aid me as quickly as possible. I would do no more running downtown, nor would I accept any program that they sent up without consulting the Harlem Committee. Then I decided, of all things, to shop for a pair of new shoes and walked over to Fifth Avenue. It was hot. The walk still filled with the noontime crowds moving with reluctance back to their jobs. I moved along close to the curb to avoid the bumping and agitated changes of pace, the chattering women in summer dresses, finally entering the leather-smelling, air-cooled interior of the shoe store with a sense of relief. My feet felt light in the new summer shoes as I went back into the blazing heat, and I recalled the old boyhood pleasure of discarding winter shoes for sneakers and the neighborhood foot races that always followed, that light-footed, speedy, floating sensation. Well, I thought, you've run your last foot race, and you'd better get back to the district in case you're called. And I hurried now, my feet feeling trim and light as I moved through the oncoming rush of sun-beaten faces. To avoid the crowd on 42nd Street, I turned off at 43rd, and it was here that things began to boil. A small fruit wagon with an array of bright peaches and pears stood near the curb, and the vendor, a florid man with bulbous nose and bright black Italian eyes, looked at me knowingly from beneath his huge white and orange umbrella, then over toward a crowd that had formed alongside the building across the street. What's wrong with him, I thought. Then I was across the street and passing the group standing with their backs to me, a clipped, insinuating voice spilled words whose meaning I couldn't catch, and I was about to pass on when I saw the boy. He was a slender brown fellow whom I recognized immediately as a close friend of Clifton's, and who now was looking intently across the tops of cars to where down the block near the post office on the other side a tall policeman was approaching. Perhaps he'll know something, I thought, as he looked around to see me and stopped in confusion. 
Hello there, I began, and when he turned toward the crowd and whistled, I didn't know whether he was telling me to do the same or signaling to someone else. I swung around, seeing him step to where a large carton sat beside the building and sling its canvas straps to his shoulder as once more he looked toward the policeman, ignoring me. Puzzled, I moved into the crowd and pressed to the front where at my feet I saw a square piece of cardboard upon which something was moving with furious action. It was some kind of toy, and I glanced at the crowd's fascinated eyes and down again, seeing it clearly this time. I'd seen nothing like it before. A grinning doll of orange and black tissue paper with thin, flat cardboard discs forming its head and feet, and which some mysterious mechanism was causing to move up and down in a loose-jointed, shoulder-shaking, infuriatingly sensuous motion, a dance that was completely detached from the black, mask-like face. It's no jumping jack, but what, I thought, seeing the doll throwing itself about with the fierce defiance of someone performing a degrading act in public, dancing as though it received a perverse pleasure from its motions. And beneath the chuckles of the crowd, I could hear the swishing of its ruffled paper, while the same out-of-the-corner-of-the-mouth voice continued to spiel. Shake it up! Shake it up. He's Sambo, the dancing doll, ladies and gentlemen. Shake him, stretch him by the neck and set him down. He'll do the rest. Yes, he'll make you laugh. He'll make you sigh, sigh. He'll make you want to dance and dance. Here you are, ladies and gentlemen, Sambo, the dancing doll. Buy one for your baby. Take him to your girlfriend and she'll love you, love you. He'll keep you entertained. He'll make you weep. Sweet tears from laughing. Shake him, shake him. You cannot break him for he's Sambo the dancing, Sambo the prancing, Sambo the entrancing, Sambo boogie woogie paper doll. And all for 25 cents, the quarter part of a dollar, ladies and gentlemen. He'll bring you joy. Step up and meet him, Sambo the. I knew I should get back to the district but I was held by the inanimate, boneless bouncing of the grinning doll and struggled between the desire to join in the laughter and to leap upon it with both feet. When it suddenly collapsed, and I saw the tip of the spieler's toe press upon the circular cardboard that formed the feet, and a broad black hand came down, its fingers deftly lifting the doll's head and stretching it upward twice its length, then releasing it to dance again. And suddenly the voice didn't go with the hand. It was as though I had waded out into a shallow pool only to have the bottom drop out and the water close over my head. I looked up. Not you, I began. But his eyes looked past me, deliberately unseeing. I was paralyzed, looking at him, knowing I wasn't dreaming, hearing... What makes him happy? What makes him dance? This Sambo, this Jambo, this high-stepping joy boy. He's more than a toy, ladies and gentlemen. He's Sambo, the dancing doll, the 20th century miracle. Look at that rumba, that Susie Q. He's Sambo, boogie, Sambo, woogie. You don't have to feed him. He sleeps collapsed. He'll kill your depression and your dispossession. He lives upon the sunshine of your lordly smile. And only 25 cents, the brotherly Two bits of a dollar just because he wants me to eat. It gives him pleasure to see me eat. You simply take him and shake him and he does the rest. Thank you, lady. It was Clifton, riding easily back and forth in his knees, flexing his legs without shifting his feet, his right shoulder raised at an angle and his arm pointing stiffly at the bouncing doll as he spilled from the corner of his mouth. 
The whistle came again, and I saw him glance quickly toward his lookout, the boy with the carton. Who else wants little Sambo before we take it on the Lambo? Speak up, ladies and gentlemen. Who wants little... And again the whistle. Who wants Sambo? The dancing, prancing. Hurry, hurry, ladies and gentlemen. There's no license for little Sambo, the joy spreader. You can't tax joy, so speak up, ladies and gentlemen. And for a second our eyes met, and he gave me a contemptuous smile. Then he spieled again. I felt betrayed. I looked at the doll and felt my throat constrict. The rage welled behind the phlegm as I rocked back on my heels and crouched forward. There was a flash of whiteness and a splatter like heavy rain striking a newspaper, and I saw the doll go over backwards, wilting into a dripping rag of frilled tissue. The hateful head turned upward on its outstretched neck, still grinning toward the sky. The crowd turned on me indignantly. The whistle came again. I saw a short, pot-bellied man look down, then up at me with amazement and explode with laughter, pointing from me to the doll, rocking. People backed away from me. I saw Clifton step close to the building where, beside the fellow with the carton, I now saw a whole chorus line of dolls flouncing themselves with a perverse increase of energy and the crowd laughing hysterically. You? You? I began, only to see him pick up two of the dolls and step forward, but now the lookout came close. He's coming, he said, nodding toward the approaching policeman as he swept up the dolls, dropping them into the carton and starting away. Follow little Sambo around the corner, ladies and gentlemen, Clifton called. There's a great show coming up. It happened so fast that in a second only I and an old lady in a blue polka dot dress were left. She looked at me, then back to the walk, smiling. I saw one of the dolls. She was still smiling, and I raised my foot to crush it, hearing her cry, Oh, no! The policeman was just opposite, and I reached down instead, picking it up and walking off in the same motion. I examined it strangely, weightless in my hand, half expecting to feel it pulse with life. It was a still frill of paper. I dropped it in the pocket where I carried Brother Tarp's chain link and started after the vanished crowd. But I couldn't face Clifton again. I didn't want to see him. I might forget myself and attack. I went in the other direction towards Sixth Avenue, past the policeman. What a way to find him, I thought. What had happened to Clifton? It was all so wrong, so unexpected. How on earth could he drop from brotherhood to this in so short a time? And why, if he had to fall back, did he try to carry the whole structure with him? What would non-members who knew him say? It was as though he had chosen, how had he put it the night we fought with Ross, to fall outside of history? I stopped in the middle of the walk with the thought, to plunge, he had said. But he knew that only in the Brotherhood could we make ourselves known, could, could we avoid being empty Sambo dolls. Such an obscene flouncing of everything human. My God! And I'd been worrying about being left out of a meeting. I'd overlook it a thousand times, no matter why I wasn't called. I'd forget it and hold on desperately to brotherhood with all my strength, for to break away would be to plunge, to plunge. And those dolls, where had they found them? Why had he picked that way to earn a quarter? Why not sell apples or song sheets or shine shoes? Context of white supremacy. So we are still in, or actually we're in chapter 20. We did not come to a clean chapter conclusion. 
Uh, chapter 20 has uh, quite a few pages left, so we're going to be picking up in the middle of chapter 20, the paragraph, I wandered past the subway and continued around the corner to 42nd Street. That's where we will pick up at for the second audio segment. If you have commentary that you would like to share, questions, the number to dial 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free VOPE line. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it's tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. When you do that, it will open a small window on your screen. Uh, the top line on that new window, it's a drop down menu. Select the number I just gave, which again is 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, actually, drop down menu, just put in the number 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for the code 564-943. And then the final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname, press random keys. Once you get all that information entered... Click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. And uh, same procedure if you'd like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star 61. I'll see your hand on the switchboard. We will add you to the line. Uh, quickly, because this came up before about what was meant with the line plunge outside history and uh i i've read this book many times so i hopefully uh, after you've read something five six times you should be able to help you know answer a few questions or connect what's happening in the plot i said at the time that line is going to come up again very important when in the book so the rewind chapter 17 after brother uh, brother todd clifton and the protagonist they had their brawl with Roz the Exhorter, and they were, uh, Brother Todd and the narrator were talking, and Brother Todd says, uh, I don't know, I suppose sometimes a man has to plunge outside history. Narrator says, what? Brother Clifton, plunge outside 
turn his back. Otherwise, he might kill somebody, go nuts. The question was asked a few weeks back, what does that mean? And I said, just pay attention. I think that's going to come up again. So we heard it again this week. Do we have any further insight on what that line plunge outside history? And interestingly, the narrator says the, the almost the exact same thing. Both times the line gets said, because after Brother Todd Clifton, this is in chapter 17, what we read a few weeks back, what I just read, somebody, uh, you might, otherwise you might kill somebody or go nuts. I didn't answer. Maybe he's right, I thought, and was suddenly very glad I had found Brotherhood, with a capital B, of course. Context of white supremacy. So if folks have any thoughts on what is meant by that phrase, even more weight on the phrase now since it's been repeated again. We are in the middle of a chapter. That's why I said the foreshadowing of what is going to happen to Brother Todd Clifton. If you have thoughts on that, other questions about what we heard in the first audio segment, if you dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, uh, Brother Jay in St. Louis. Uh, greetings to everyone and uh, you as well. Um, I like this chapter a lot. And, uh, some things that stood out that I think is worth thinking about is the rape, um, the sexual assault that took place. So the white woman seduced him to her home and sexually assaulted him. And the way he characterizes his sexual assault um, within the narrative, I think is very interesting. So he describes a lot of emotions that you feel when you be, be uh, are assaulted. So he says he, when she called, he's like, uh, I hung up with a mixture of relief and anxiety. Um, so he's all like, and then he's constantly flustered at the, at the thought of her. Um, and so I think his sexual scene with her is just the beginning of the end. And uh, I think all the white people know as well. I think they can smell it on them. I think they talk. And that's why all the people were looking at him and Googling on him. And he said that he was looking at the sea of faces of the white people. And, uh, he said it was a middle passage of the sea of faces. Well, he was going through the middle passage of the sea of faces. So I think his, or his uh, altercation with this white woman is like pretty much enslavement. Um, and I think it's interesting how he, you know, it gave him confidence and stuff like that. But moving on, I thought it was also interesting that uh, he got reassigned right away and that bro Brother Jack talked to him very sternly and strongly when he was uh, requested to the meeting and reassigned to Harlem. And then once he's in Harlem, he gets these new shoes, which I think the new shoes was also a foreshadowing to what happened to Brother, brother Clifton. Um because they're new and he said he felt like running a race. Um, and then the plunge out of history thing, I had gave my opinion on that uh, just very quickly and I, you know, I'm done. But I had gave my opinion on the plunge out of history thing. And uh, uh, with the second use of it, 
uh, I feel a little bit, I feel like my uh, previous uh, inclination was a little bit correct, um, that they were kind of like outside of the history. I feel like theoretically there's an argument there that the brotherhood represents true history, real life, real living, the authentic sublime, and then outside of them is nothingness. But I also feel like inside of it, there's that white-black comparison and how whites have controlled history and things of that nature. But I really think more about death this time. You know, whatever's outside of history is kind of dead. And um, I'll shut my mouth. Thanks for letting me speak. Hmm. Very interesting assessment, Brother Jay, in St. Louis. Much obliged for sharing. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have commentary, star six one, and we will nab you on the line. We had quite a few folks also who uh, wrote in and have been writing in commentary. I just have not been able to uh, read their thoughts as we have been moving along. Uh, so I will try to get some of those in today as well. Uh, first person wrote in. Uh, I've been following the books. I've been following the book study reading in the archives. I think you and the listeners <clears throat> have been doing a phenomenal job deciphering the text. I wanted to make an attempt at answering some of the questions that you've posed in the last week's uh, book study. One question uh, you asked was the significance of blindness in the text. There have been multiple incidents mentioned in the text that mention characters being blind. The first incident that I remember is the Battle Royal then uh, Reverend Barbie, followed by the main character himself. I think that the blindness represents a deep state of confusion from the lack of understanding of the way racism operates. The characters that are blind in the text are being used by whites to create more confusion and to harm other non-whites uh, uh, without their realization. All the blind characters think they are doing a service to other non-whites, but instead they are being manipulated by whites. This reminds me of Mr. Fuller's quote, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, and how it works, everything else that you think you understand will only confuse you. Your next question of the significance of the jolly nigger bank also brings to, not, uh, brings to mind a quote from Mr. Fuller, you are the ghetto. As the main character's status is elevated by the Brotherhood, he begins to think of himself as more sophisticated than other non-whites, specifically other black people. We can see evidence of this from the way he spoke about Mary after returning to her house to pay her the rent money and the way he talked about the people that were banging on the wall, wall while he was at Mary's house. I think the jolly nigger bank is inserted into the text to remind the main character and even the readers that no matter how high whites elevate you, you will always be viewed as a nigger. I also think that Ralph Ellison could have been saying that whites move black people in positions in order to serve different roles that will strengthen the system and for their own amusement. I think this is hinted at by Ralph Ellison when the protagonist attends the first meeting with the Brotherhood. One of the very first things one of the less codified whites ask him to do is to sing a Negro spiritual. The protagonist does not even see this as an act of racism, but instead a friendly gesture. The other whites in the room respond by acting embarrassed and ashamed instead of angry and outraged, which is telling. 
In response to your last question, I think Ralph Ellison named the book Invisible Man instead of The Invisible Man because he wanted to include all black males and not just the experience of one. I think one of the first reasons that Ralph Ellison names the book the way he does is to place importance on the invisibility of black manhood. Even though the main character wants to think of himself as a man and for others to treat him like one, not one person in the story responds to him like a man. I think that this is the experience of many black males. As a black male, you want to assert yourself as a man, but when no one in society acknowledges your manhood, it becomes invisible. I think that Ralph Ellison's understanding of what it means to be a black male may have led him to name this book the way he did. Hmm. Quite insightful. Much obliged for sharing. Other people wrote in, as I said, I will try to share as we proceed through the broadcast. Uh, lots of uh, spectators, uh, if you have thoughts or questions from uh, the first chapter, let us know. I guess while folks are, are sitting and pondering, I will share one more uh, from some of the folks who wrote in. Uh, so I, I can only do the first half of this because we have not read all of chapter 20. So I'll, I'll give up to where we are and then I'll give the other part after we finish the second audio segment. Uh, from chapter 19. Uh, the chapter opens with the narrator giving a speech at the women's meeting. The sexual tension is clear between the narrator and a white woman he met at the meeting. He is enticed to meet the woman at her apartment with obvious sexual overtones for the encounter in spite of the pretext of discussing ideology. The sexual encounter between the narrator and this white woman is foreshadowed over much of the previous text, which makes overtly sexual references to white women, beginning with the very first chapter. The section in which the woman confesses her attraction to the narrator because of his speeches being primitive and having tom-toms beating in his voice is an overt fetishization of the narrator. The narrator also becomes aware of this when he replies that I thought that was the beat of profound ideas, the passage in which the narrator is unsure whether he is seeing the woman's husband or is he dreaming is interesting. I think the passage speaks to the maximum confusion that sexual encounters between white and non-whites produces due to the power dynamic between the two. It's obvious in the chapter that the white woman is the more powerful. I think that the choice that Ellison makes to not give actual names to certain characters, for example, narrator and woman, is a convention that he uses to emphasize the universal nature of the particular character. The fact that the title is Invisible Man versus the, Invis the Invisible Man may be an example of this. Uh, let's see. Just trying to see how far down I can read. Oh, yep, he's going to get our question. So I can get right up to, okay, great. All right, so this is, I'll stop where we got it. So chapter 20 involves the return of the narrator's uh, of the narrator to Harlem, he finds that Harlem has changed. He is met with hostility by the non-white people of Harlem, largely due to the feeling of abandonment by the Brotherhood. They have been used and manipulated to promote the agenda of the Brotherhood. 
reviewers have previously suggested that the Brotherhood represents the Communist Party, which Ellison apparently was involved with in real life. However, Ellison apparently denied that the Brotherhood represented the Communist Party. I think this speaks to the universal nature of his representation and his choice of a vague name for the group is intentional. I suspect that Ellison wants to substitute any group dominated by white people and the experience that non-whites will have being a part of it. The narrator encounters Brother Todd Clifton is also a part of the chapter. Brother Clifton has left the Brotherhood and now sells Sambo paper dolls. I think that Brother Clifton's fight with Roz the Exhorter and Roz's speech to him may have caused him to question his own participation with the Brotherhood. Ellison may be commenting that non-whites represent the dancing Sambo. Brother Clifton and the narrator were possibly the dancing Sambos for the Brotherhood. Brother Clifton perhaps may have come to this conclusion as the reason he left the Brotherhood. There is reference again to falling out of history. Thought I just heard that. Uh, maybe falling out of history is suggesting that you become irrelevant when you are no longer a part of the history that whites control. I have also been thinking about the phrase falling out of history and how it may relate to Mr. Fuller's codified thoughts on the definition of history. Hmm. The rest of this we'll have to share after, you know. Anywho, that his analysis of the falling out of history uh, reminds me, uh, Brother Jay in St. Louis, when he was saying uh, falling out of history represents some form of uh, death. Uh, seems similar if I'm, you know, unless I'm uh, maligning someone's argument but or someone's uh, theory. Uh, but this person that wrote in, it seems similar uh, in, in him saying that you, you are no longer relevant when you are not a part of White's story and what they say is history or relevant. Anywho, uh, I'll check again, see if folks have a thought or are they still spectating. I thought incredible chapter and a chapter I cannot believe this many spectators with folks favorite area of people activity area eight. Wowee. Anywho, I'll share a few of my thoughts while I wait to see if other folks have uh, comments that they would like to share. The very beginning of chapter 19. When he says, so this is right when he gives his first talk uh, for the woman question. And he says it was only after the meeting was breaking up that there came the developments which even my volatile suspicions hadn't allowed me to foresee. Very important, I thought, uh, because at this point, he's already been through a lot. I mean, he's had an explosion, a lobotomy. I mean, wowee. He's been kicked out of school, all kinds of things at this point. So uh, and he's, you know, had some mistreatment with white people where he's starting, I think, to even, you know, have some questions raised about that. The experience with Mr. Norton. Uh, but to admit, man, I totally did not understand. Uh, the white woman did a doozy on me. I had no suspicions at all. I thought that I was suspicious. I thought I was really suspicious at that point, And it was not sufficient at all. I think that is many, many victims of racism, white supremacy, who do not understand racism. Uh, I thought it was <laughs> Dr. Welsing moment on top of when later on in the, in the meeting with this white woman, uh, she says, uh, I might add that I serve a fair cup of coffee. Favorite word. Uh, 
when and few paragraphs down from that, they're having their discussion when uh, she says, you can see, brother, pause, the glow she gave the word was disturbing. Oh, love that. I love that. Again, readers, some of the folks, when they heard we were going to read this book, were like, oh, is this why you don't like the word brother? Love Ellison, problematizing that word as well. From white people using it and black people using it. Can't wait to get to that part later on. When... Yeah, the whole way that she describes his auditory skills, uh, it's super sexualized. I thought, you know, everyone has done a great job pointing that out. I thought she was, it reminded me of the way, not just the way that the white racist of the brotherhood who wanted him to sing a spiritual and said, get hot. But I said, then a doctor, when he was at the Liberty Paint Factory, had also said, get hot when he was getting shocked uh, that whites were saying that consistently. I thought she was going to say, get hot uh, here as well. I thought it was going to come up again. But I mean, it's very close. The same uh, racist trope uh, about how whites see blacks, regardless of circumstance. Uh, Primitive. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Let's see the when he says, and if I were really free, I thought lifting my glass, I'd get the hell out of here. I thought that was really important. Number one, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, But him recognizing at some level that there was some danger that it would probably be best be best if he left. But he didn't. That is, in my view, the power of whites. I think a lot of us end up in situation with whites where we are not comfortable, but white, not white privilege, white power can often compel non-whites to remain in situations where they are not comfortable doing things that they do not want to do. Renithia Tate Tate talked about that exactly in pieces of a puzzle that a lot of these uh, tragic arrangements happen because we are afraid to say no. We don't feel free enough to just say, I'm going to get my hind parts out of here. Continuing. Oh, and she's in control of this entire situation. I think uh, when Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing have said that the white person, male or female, does the selecting, if there's going to be some sort of sexual encounter, excuse me, uh, this is a great illustration uh, of that, that she has totally the one that's doing the selecting about if this encounter uh, is going to take place, not the protagonist. Uh, Let's see. The whole uh, dream state where he's confused about this, I thought was great. Uh, Ellison even putting the idea out that this could have all been orchestrated and the male uh, is there, the sexual perversions that Minister Malcolm X talked about in detail in his autobiography, the sexual perversions of whites. Uh, Again, being put out in the same area, Harlem, New York, for both Ellison and Malcolm X. Uh, But uh, talking about this, uh, once again, tragic arrangements. Uh, But when he says, could I have seen him without his seeing me? Or again, had he seen me and been silent out of sophistication, decadence over civilization, question mark. Even that characterization right there, I think, 
again, the brilliance of Ellison. Is this out of sophistication? That's what, in our confusion, we're led to believe. Like, oh, this is, whites are so sophisticated. They, you know, they're not even into some sort of monogamous arrangement. They're beyond all that. They've worked out a partnership and he knows. And he, No, this is just total sexual deviance and perversion, uh, which is decadence where he gets right to the over civilization. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, that word, quote unquote, civilization. Uh, we want to use the most accurate terms in my view, perversion, deviance, most, uh, most accurate. Dr. Wells, in which you say all the time, tell me what you do with your genitals and I'll tell you what you think of yourself. Uh, continuing. Oh man. The passage where he says, uh, why did they have to mix their women into everything? between us and everything we wanted to change in the world, they placed a woman socially, politically, economically. Why, God damn it, why did they insist upon confusing the class struggle with the ass struggle, debasing both us and them all, <clears throat> all human motives? Great passage. Uh, and I think using sex in any way shape form to cause confusion i think racists they recognize the power of sex and i think mr fuller said consistently if you can get somebody confused sexually or distracted uh sexually you can do a lot of damage and might have them you know permanently distracted or at least for a long period of time i would not uh, i do not disagree continuing when when he's talking about this account encounter and he says my nerves we're in a state of constant tension. That also the system of racism, white supremacy and him thinking, oh, man, what happens, you know, if, if this gets out, you know, if this gets reported, you know, if she rats on me or, you know, her husband or anything, all of these different things that could happen as a result of this not going towards solving the problem uh, and just producing further confusion uh, for a victim of racism. And I said before, it sounded like maybe Clifton same thing had happened to him. This might be a part of the brotherhood. We bring in whoever the Sambo of the month is going to be. We let them give a few speeches. Uh, and then, you know, the, the women of the brotherhood, the sisters, uh, they get, you know, to do their thing uh, that he talks about eloquently. I think he has uh, the passage. I highlighted. I'll get to me when I get to in my notes. Uh, let's see. When he goes back and is talking to the folks in the Brotherhood and he says Roz the extorter and his gang of racist gangsters are taking advantage of this and are increasing their agitation. The greatest gangsters in the known universe, racist man, racist woman, racist child, calling black people racist, standard racist. And to have Ellison having whites do this in the night or yeah, writing about this in the 1950s brilliant brilliant i i mean to hear whites doing this right now in 2018 that's why i said you can learn a lot about racism white supremacy just from this text i think uh ellison explains a tremendous amount about the system of white supremacy through this fictional text uh check again see if other folks uh have questions or folks still content to spectate uh star six one if you have any thoughts to share on the first audio segment ralph ellison's Invisible Man. Uh, let's see, I'll get while I'm waiting, I'll look at some of the notes that I had for chapter 20 as well. Let's see. For chapter 20, man, 
I do not know how I forgot uh, the character McAdams. Make sure I'm getting, uh, yeah, McAdams. I, I do not know how I forgot this character, but easily, easily, in the spirit of Gusty, one of my favorites, uh, this scene would have been more than enough. I would have broken it out and read it uh, a few times when, when folks came in. But when he goes back to Harlem and he goes to the bar to meet uh, Brother Maceo, and he goes in and does it. Good evening, brothers. And uh, the two guys, they look at him and are like, you know, what? You ain't no kin of mine. And uh, he, he goes on and says, uh, look here, Beryl, we wanted to ask you one question. We just want to know if you could tell us just whose brother this here cat's supposed to be. Uh, and he goes on, what community even? He is killing them. Community sounding just like Mr. Fuller. What are you talking about, community? Uh, and he says, uh, I hear you got white fever and left and it just goes on. But uh, just everything about him questioning the use of the term brother and particularly after the brotherhood's exodus from the black area where, you know, we're all concerned about your problems and focused on your issues. And now, you know, we moved on to other bigger and better things. And, you know, we'll we'll deal with your issues later. Uh, and, and brother, <laughs> brother, we'll deal with your issues like get out of here with all of that. I absolutely love it. And like I said, him, him problematizing the use of the word brother when white people are using it and even when black people are using it with other black people. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, let's see, Mr. Dimrifor, if you had uh, questions, comments you wanted to share, you should be with us. Feel free. Yes, ma'am, be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I was wondering, um, did we get to the part with uh, Brother Tobit yet, or Brother Tubit? I do not think so. Uh, we are still... Oh, okay. We stopped in Chapter 20, so we have we are just at the point where we see Todd Clifton, Brother Todd Clifton again, and he's selling the Sambo dolls. We just stopped right there... Uh, yeah, <laughs> we just stopped right there, so we have not got that far yet. Oh, okay. I had uh, earlier I, uh, first greetings uh, to all the callers and listeners uh, and hosts. Gus, uh, I had posted uh, a picture of <clears throat> that paper Sambo doll on the uh, cows uh, group. But then I took it off because it's just so degrading. But I wanted to show that um, Ellison's uh, illustrations and things that he used are really realistic because there actually was a paper uh, Sambo doll that was supposed to dance and uh, do a couple of things. Uh, <clears throat> and then I was wondering if it's supposed to make people happy and joyful, what people was it supposed to make happy? And I know it wasn't black people. It had to be white people that was getting enjoyment from playing with these. And uh, he made a reference to when Brother Jack was speaking to him, uh, the narrator said he was just as disgusting as Brother Jack. Uh, from the fact that uh, 
Brother Todd Clifton was selling the Sambo dolls on the street. And then I thought, well, he's disgusted, but Brother Jack, Brother Jack's not disgusted about that. They, they're amused by that. That, uh, that really uh, does something for them. If you're out there furthering the, um, you know, degradation and uh, the humiliation of black people, then that's all part of the uh, system of white supremacy. Brother Jack was not humiliated by that. Uh, And uh, I guess there was a scene where he was... um, Uh, involved with the uh, white female and there was a uh, male in the hallway that actually saw him when he was uh, leaving uh, the bedroom or the house and then it it brought to mind uh, some instances where uh, uh, Pam had brought up in her book where there were, there's clubs, I guess, Mandingo clubs where, you know, they use, uh, white people would get black males to actually come to their homes and um, engage in uh, sexual play or sexual conduct with their wives and while they look on. That's part of the uh, uh, diversion of the, uh, uh, I guess, the sexual uh, deprivation, you know, that they practice. And he didn't quite understand that when he saw the man standing in the hallway as he was leaving and then was fearful when he went around other white thinking that they may have known what he had been up to previously. So if you know and you feel self-conscious about something that you're doing, seem like you would be uh, cautious about doing that. You don't want to uh, compromise yourself or, uh, you know, give up your integrity, especially if you want to be uh, seen as a leader or some type of spoke spokesperson for black people, then why would you be in the bedroom of a white woman? You know, it's just, uh, I don't know, it boggles the mind. But then uh, that's exactly what the system would do uh, to discredit someone that is a so-called spokesperson or a black leader of the people in the community. And I think it's becoming evident to the narrator that uh, even his intentions, what he thinks are his intentions of uh, coming to the aid of non-white people is really um, second to his uh, basic instincts you know, because he he seems to uh, do things and then he has to counter uh, the things that he's done after he's actually done them without 
actually thinking before he uh, proceeds. But uh, I'll mute my line and uh, uh, get caught up on where we are right now. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Brother Demry Four. I hope you and the wife are doing well. Uh, I cannot believe I forgot to mention with this chapter this week and all the talk area eight, this white woman, just a important reminder. This book, 1952, was published three years before the lynching of Emmett Till. A person, I believe, Ivy, if you had commentary, line should be open. Sister Ivy. Brother Renegade, uh, greetings to you and to all the callers on the line. I had some questions uh, before my comments. Uh, the first one was, did they, well, first of all, this, this, this white woman, like this, who is she? Like, is she a part of, is she affiliated, I would say, with the Brotherhood? Uh, she was at the one of the meetings when he was assigned to do the woman's uh, the woman question. Uh, she was at one of the meetings where he gave a talk, and it sounds like she's uh, in the organization at some level. Unless I misread, it sounds like she's she's in the organization. She says she's heard him uh, speak several times. He doesn't know, you know, what her involvement is. If she's just some white uh, white woman who donates money or what it is, but it sounds like she's affiliated somehow. Okay, did they, did the brotherhood, so-called brotherhood, reassign him to talk more about women's issues versus uh, issues of racism? Well, see, it seemed this was a part of the punishment when he was accused uh, last week. Uh, I think that was chapter 18. So when Brother Restrum, who's a black male, accuses him of trying to use the Brotherhood for his own personal uh, self-aggrandizement, uh, they say, okay, we're going to investigate. And for the time being, we want you to move out of the Harlem office and you're going to move downtown and you're going to address the woman question. So this was all a part of the investigation, which is still you know, ongoing. That's what he's still talking about this week, you know, whether whether that's going to pan out and, you know, if he's going to be found innocent. Okay. Um, what I was going to say was, man, that, uh, you know, conflation. And, oh, let me ask you one more question. He made a statement about um, they want to, I don't know if he used the word conflate. I don't think he did. But, um Something about connecting the, oh, man, one problem with another problem. You said it not too long ago. You know what I'm the talking about? Clash struggle the clash problem ash with something else. Yes, yes. Uh, the, he was talking about. Uh, what did he mean by that? He was talk he that was when he was complaining about why they had to mix their women into everything uh when we were trying to fight against racism and everything else, and they had to bring their women into it the class struggle uh the class struggle with the ash struggle was the way he phrased it clash c l a s h c l a s s 
that's what I thought. So he when he when you say women, he he's talking about like women being paid paid less or something. Oh, I think in this context, he's talking about white women because this is after the sexual encounter with this white woman. So I think that's what he's uh, being upset about, that he was thinking that the brotherhood should be above this because he says this whole encounter had brought to mind uh, forgotten stories of male servants summoned to wash the mistress's back, chauffeurs sharing the master's wives, Pullman porters invited to the drawing room of rich wives headed for Reno thinking, but this is the movement the brotherhood like this is a common experience throughout the system of white supremacy but somehow in his mind he thought the brotherhood was above this and it's not so i think in this context when he says why did they bring women into everything he means sexually hmm right right oh just uh one more question you said bringing in bringing them in sexually what do you mean by sexually uh where your black people are coming in to address issues of racism. He says uh, political issues, economic issues, uh, social issues. And as opposed to these problems getting solved, it's sexual intercourse with a white woman. I have a white woman to date. That's to me uh, what it seems to suggest, particularly in the context of this happening uh, where he wants to do work and try to solve problems He's being redirected to this white woman's bedroom. I think that's what he means there. Oh, okay. And that was well, even somehow they always go ahead. I was just going to say the vet, if we recall, uh, that got uh, liberation or freedom got connected to a white woman symbolically because he was saying he wasn't going to have time to do much else. That symbolically, a white woman might be the only taste of freedom he gets. Okay, they always um, it's it's interesting that they've been uh, running that fun game. Shout out to Pam, um, for even that long, even way back. They are always trying to use something to to deflect from racism, and I thought that that was interesting. And I also thought that um, just the uh, what was the other thing? Oh. It was, and it's so funny, he said something about that tonight, and I don't remember what it was he said, but he said something about how just the, he, he talked about how the brotherhood was of supreme importance to him, and how that just was his main concern. And I remember when he was um, talking about that earlier in the book, and how he, I think he was like talking about how he would be, you know, you know, very distraught to just be, you know, apart from them. And was it uh, Cliff, Todd Clifton? Was he the one who um, snitched on him about the, the magazine and lied on him about the magazine situation? No, that was Brother uh, Restrum. That's right. That's right. He's black, right? Correct. Okay. The thing is about uh, these two, as well as, uh, seems like Dr. Bledsoe, also these three, is that they, like I, I look at um, Restroom, how he would do all of that just to stay close to these white people, just take drastic measures like that and, and desperate measures like that, and even Dr. Bledsoe to um, sabotage the, 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 the main character um, to 
they to to, to see, in, in my view to um lack of words score points with uh with with white people that you know I did something to him I took care of you know this the discomfort that Mr. Norton or whatever his name was um um encountered even though it wasn't his fault just the fact that you was involved in it I'm gonna step in and you know do and take care of it and do something about that so I was uh really tripping off of how their um just desperation to be around uh white people and to stay around them and how they have you know conditioned us to be um like that and I wanted to ask uh just uh two more questions which was at the end of the broadcast may I ask a question about uh your your yoga class and about Pam uh sure if we have time uh yes if you if we don't get it in today we'll definitely get it in on the compensatory call in tomorrow okay thank you and uh, i'll mute my line thanks everyone thanks Gus. for sure uh the second chapter is long or it's not even uh the second audio segment uh per se is long uh it's just lots of events uh we didn't finish all of chapter uh 20 and chapter 21 is very long so uh, buckle up. Very important scene. Wowie. Wow. Oh, we got another speech. I said, pay attention to the speeches. Pay attention to the speeches. Major speech. Pay uh, huge, huge attention. Wowie. The brilliance of Ralph Ellison and Joe Morton. Smashing job with the narration. Context of white supremacy. Again, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. Audio segment number two. We're picking up in chapter 20. I wandered past the subway and continued around the corner to 42nd Street, my mind grappling for meaning. And when I came around the corner onto the crowded walk into the sun, they were already lining the curb and shading their faces with their hands. I saw the traffic moving with the lights, and across the street a few pedestrians were looking back toward the center of the block where the trees of Bryant Park rose above two men. I saw a flight of pigeons whirl out of the trees, and it all happened in the swift interval of their circling, very abruptly, and in the noise of the traffic, yet seeming to unfold in my mind like a slow-motion movie run-off with the soundtrack dead. At first I thought it was a cop and a shoeshine boy. Then there was a break in the traffic, and across the sun-glaring bands of trolley rails I recognized Clifton. His partner had disappeared now, and Clifton had the box slung to his left shoulder, with the cop moving slowly behind and to one side of him. They were coming my way, passing a newsstand, and I saw the rails in the asphalt and a fire plug at the curb and the flying birds, and thought, you'll have to follow and pay his fine. Just as the cop pushed him, jolting him forward and Clifton trying to keep the box from swinging against his leg and saying something over his shoulder and going forward as one of the pigeons swung down into the street and up again, leaving a feather floating white in the dazzling backlight of the sun. And I could see the cop push Clifton again, stepping solidly forward in his black shirt, his arms shooting out stiffly, sending him in a head-snapping forward stumble until he caught himself, saying something over his shoulder again the two moving in a kind of march that I'd seen many times, but never with anyone like Clifton. And I could see the cop bark a command and lunge forward, thrusting out his arm and missing, thrown off balance as suddenly Clifton spun on his toes like a dancer and swung his right arm over and around in a short jolting arc, his torso carrying forward and to the left in a motion that sent the box strap free as his right foot traveled forward and his left arm followed through in a floating uppercut that sent the cop's cap sailing into the street and his feet flying to drop him hard, rocking from left to right on the walk as Clifton kicked the box 
stunning aside, and crouched, his left foot forward, his hands high, waiting. And between the flashing of cars, I could see the cop propping himself on his elbows, like a drunk trying to get his head up, shaking it and thrusting it forward. And somewhere between the dull roar of traffic and the subway vibrating underground, I heard rapid explosions and saw each pigeon diving wildly, as though blackjacked by the sound, and the cop sitting up straight now, and rising to his knees looking steadily at Clifton, and the pigeons plummeting swiftly into the trees, and Clifton still facing the cop, and suddenly crumpling. He fell forward on his knees, like a man saying his prayers, just as a heavyset man in a hat with a turned-down brim stepped from behind the newsstand and yelled a protest. I couldn't move. The sun seemed to scream an inch above my head. Someone shouted. A few men were starting into the street. The cop was standing now and looking down at Clifton as though surprised, the gun in his hand. I took a few steps forward, walking blindly now, unthinking, yet my mind registering it all, vividly. Across and starting up on the curb and seeing Clifton up closer now, lying in the same position, on his side, a huge wetness growing on his shirt, and I couldn't set my foot down. Cars sailed close behind me but I couldn't take the step that would raise me up to the walk. I stood there, one leg in the street, and the other raised above the curb, hearing whistles screeching, and looked toward the library to see two cops coming on in a lunging, big-bellied run. I looked back to Clifton. The cop was waving me away with his gun, sounding like a boy with a changing voice. Get back on the other side, he said. He was the cop that I'd passed on 43rd a few minutes before. My mouth was dry. He's a friend of mine. I want to help, I said, finally stepping onto the curb. You don't need no help, Junior. Get across that street. The cop's hair hung on the sides of his face. His uniform was dirty, and I watched him without emotion, hesitated, hearing the sound of footfalls approaching. Everything seemed slowed down. A pool formed slowly on the walk. My eyes blurred. I raised my head. The cop looked at me curiously. Above in the park, I could hear the furious flapping of wings, on my neck, the pressure of eyes. I turned, a round-headed, apple-cheeked boy with thickly freckled nose and Slavic eyes leaned over the fence of the park above. And now as he saw me turn, he shrilled something to someone behind him, his face lighting up with ecstasy. What does it mean, I wondered, turning back to that which I did not wish to turn. There were three cops now, one watching the crowd and the others looking at Clifton. The first cop had his cap on again. Look, Junior, he said very clearly, I had enough trouble for today. You going to get on across that street? I opened my mouth, but nothing would come. Kneeling, one of the cops was examining Clifton, making notes on a pad. I'm his friend, I said, and the one making notes looked up. He's a cooked pigeon, Mac. You ain't got any friend anymore. I looked at him. Hey, Mickey, the boy above us called. The guy's out cold. I looked down. That's right, the kneeling cop said. What's your name? I told him. I, I answered his questions about Clifton as best I could until the wagon came. For once, it came quickly. I watched numbly as they moved him inside, placing the box of dolls in with him. Across the street, the crowd still churned. Then the wagon was gone, and I started back toward the subway. Say, mister! The boy's voice shrilled down. Your friend sure knows how to use his dukes. Biff, bang, one, two, and the cop's on his ass.
I bowed my head to this final tribute. And now, walking away in the sun, I tried to erase the scene from my mind. I wandered down the subway stairs, seeing nothing, my mind plunging. The subway was cool, and I leaned against a pillar, hearing the roar of trains passing across on the other side, feeling the rushing roar of air. Why should a man deliberately plunge outside of history and peddle an obscenity, my mind went on abstractedly. Why should he choose to disarm himself, give up his voice, and leave the only organization offering him a chance to define himself? The platform vibrated, and I looked down. Bits of paper whirled up in the passage of air, settling quickly as a train moved past. Why had he turned away? Why had he chosen to step off the platform and fall beneath the train? Why did he choose to plunge into nothingness, into the void of faceless faces, of soundless voices, lying outside history? I tried to step away and look at it from a distance of words read in books, half-remembered. For history records the patterns of men's lives, they say. Who slept with whom? and with what results, who fought, and who won, and who lived to lie about it afterwards. All things, it is said, are duly recorded, all things of importance, that is, but not quite. For actually it is only the known, the seen, the heard, and only those events that the recorder regards as important that are put down, those lies his keepers keep their power by. But the cop would be Clifton's historian his judge, his witness, and his executioner. And I was the only brother in the watching crowd, and I the only witness for the defense, knowing neither the extent of his guilt nor the nature of his crime. Where were the historians today, and how would they put it down? I stood there with the trains plunging in and out, throwing blue sparks, what did they ever think of us, transitory ones? Ones such as I had been before I found brotherhood. Birds of passage who were too obscure for learned classification, too silent for the most sensitive recorders of sound, of natures too ambiguous for the most ambiguous words, and too distant from the centers of historical decision to sign or even to applaud the signers of historical documents. We who write no novels, histories, or other books... What about us, I thought, seeing Clifton again in my mind and going to sit upon a bench as a cool gust of air rolled up the tunnel? A body of people came down the platform, some of them Negroes. Yes, I thought. What about those of us who shoot up from the south into the busy city like wild jacks in the box broken loose from our springs, so sudden that our gait becomes like that of deep-sea divers suffering from the bends? What about those fellows waiting still and silent there, on the platform, so still and silent that they clash with the crowd in their very immobility, standing noisy in their very silence, harsh as a cry of terror in their quietness. What about those three boys coming now along the platform, tall and slender, walking stiffly with swinging shoulders in their well-pressed, too-hot-for-summer suits, their collars high and tight about their necks, their identical hats of black cheap felt set upon the crowns of their heads with a severe formality above their hard, conked hair. It was as though I'd never seen their like before. 
walking slowly, their shoulders swaying, their legs swinging from their hips in trousers that ballooned upward from cuffs fitting snug about their ankles, their coats long and hip-tight, with shoulders far too broad to be those of natural Western men. These fellows whose bodies seemed... What had one of my teachers said of me? You're like one of those African sculptures, distorted in the interest of a design. Well, what design and whose? I stared as they seemed to move like dancers in some kind of funeral ceremony, swaying, going forward, their black faces secret, moving slowly down the subway platform, their heavy-heeled, plated shoes making a rhythmical tapping as they moved. <laughs> Everyone must have seen them, or heard their muted laughter, or smelled the heavy pomade on their hair, or perhaps failed to see them at all for they were men outside of historical time. They were untouched. They didn't believe in brotherhood. No doubt had never heard of it. Or perhaps like Clifton would mysteriously have rejected its mysteries. Men of transition whose faces were immobile. I got up and went behind them. Women shoppers with bundles and impatient men in straw hats and seersucker suits stood along the platform as they passed. And suddenly I found myself thinking... Do they come to bury the others or to be entombed, to give life or to receive it? Do the others see them, think about them, even those standing close enough to speak? And if they spoke back with the impatient businessmen in conventional suits and tired housewives with their plunder understand, what would they say? For the boy speaker jived up transitional language full of country glamour, thick transitional thoughts, though perhaps they dream the same old, ancient dreams. They were men out of time, unless they found brotherhood. Men out of time who would soon be gone and forgotten. But who knew? And now I began to tremble so violently, I had to lean against a refuse can. Who knew but that they were the saviors, the true leaders, the bearers of something precious, the stewards of something uncomfortable, burdensome, which they hated because living outside the realm of history, there was no one to applaud their value and they themselves failed to understand it. What if Brother Jack were wrong? What if history was a gambler? instead of a force in a laboratory experiment, and the boys, his ace in the hole. What if history was not a reasonable citizen, but a madman full of paranoid guile, and these boys, his agents, his big surprise, his own revenge, for they were outside, in the dark with Sambo, the dancing paper doll, taking it on the Lambo with my fallen brother, Todd Clifton. Todd, Todd, running and dodging the forces of history, instead of making a dominating stand. A train came. I followed them inside. There were many seats, and the three sat together. I stood holding on to the center pole, looking down the length of the car. On one side I saw a white nun in black, telling her beads. And standing before the door across the aisle, there was another, dressed completely in white, the exact duplicate of the other, except that she was black, and her black feet bare. Neither of the nuns was looking at the other, but at their crucifixes, and suddenly... 
<laughs> I left, and a verse I'd heard long ago of the golden day paraphrased itself in my mind. Bread and wine, bread and wine, your cross ain't nearly so heavy as mine. And the nuns rode on with lowered heads. I looked at the boys. They sat formally as they walked. From time to time, one of them would look at his reflection in the window and give his hat brim a snap, the others watching him silently, communicating ironically with their eyes, then looking straight ahead. I staggered with the lunging of the train, feeling the overhead fans driving the hot air down upon me. What was I in relation to the boys, I wondered? Perhaps an accident like Douglas. Perhaps each hundred years or so, men like them, like me, appeared in society, drifting through, and yet by all historical logic, we, I, should have disappeared around the first part of the 19th century, rationalized, out of existence. Perhaps like them, I was a throwback, a, a small, distant meteorite that died several hundred years ago and now lived only by virtue of the light that speeds through space at too great a pace to realize that its source has become a piece of lead. This was silly. Such thoughts. I looked at the boys. One tapped, another on the knee. I saw him remove three rolled magazines from an inner pocket, passing two around and keeping one for himself. The others took theirs silently and began to read in complete absorption. One held his magazine high before his face, and for an instant I saw a vivid scene. The shining rails, the fire hydrant, the fallen policeman, the diving birds, and in the mid-ground, Clifton, crumpling. Then I saw the cover of a comic book and thought, Clifton would have known them better than I. He knew them all the time. I studied them closely until they left the train, their shoulders rocking, their heavy heel plates clicking, remote cryptic messages in the brief silence of the train's stop. I came out of the subway weak, moving through the heat as though I carried a heavy stone, the weight of a mountain, on my shoulders. My new shoes hurt my feet. Now, moving through the crowds along 125th Street, I was painfully aware of other men dressed like the boys, and of girls in dark, exotic-colored stockings, their costumes surreal variations of downtown styles. They'd been there all along, but somehow I'd missed them, I'd missed them even when my work had been most successful. They were outside the groove of history, and it was my job to get them in, all of them. I looked into the design of their faces, hardly a one that was unlike someone I'd known down south. Forgotten names sang through my head like forgotten scenes in dreams. I moved with the crowd, the sweat pouring off me, listening to the grinding roar of traffic, the growing sound of a record shop, loudspeaker blaring a languid blues. I stopped. Was this all that would be recorded? Was this the only true history of the times, a, a mood blared by trumpets, trombones, saxophones, and drums, a song with turgid, inadequate words? My mind flowed. It was as though in this short block I was forced to walk past everyone I'd ever known and no one would smile or call my name. No one fixed me in his eyes. I walked in feverish isolation. Near the corner now, a couple of boys darted out of the five and ten with handfuls of candy bars, dropping them along the walks as they ran with a man right behind. 
They came toward me, pumping fast, and I killed an impulse to trip the man and was confused all the more when an old woman standing further along threw out her leg and swung a heavy bag. The man went down, sliding across the walk as she shook her head in triumph. A pressure of guilt came over me. I stood on the edge of the walk watching the crowd threatening to attack the man until a policeman appeared and dispersed them. And although I knew no one man could do much about it, I felt responsible. All our work had been very little. No great change had been made. And it was all my fault. I'd been so fascinated by the motion that I'd forgotten to measure what it was bringing forth. I'd been asleep, dreaming. When I got back to the district, a small group of youth members stopped their joking to welcome me. But I couldn't break the news. I went through to the office with only a nod, shutting the door upon their voices and sat staring out through the trees. The once fresh green of the trees was dark and drying now, and somewhere down below a clothesline peddler clanged his bell and called. Then, as I fought against it, the scene came back, not of the death, but of the dolls. Why had I lost my head and spat upon the doll, I wondered. What had Clifton felt when he saw me? He must have hated me behind his spiel, yet he ignored me. Yes, and been amused by my political stupidity. I had blown up and acted personally instead of denouncing the significance of the dolls, him, the obscene idea, and seizing the opportunity to educate the crowd. We lost no opportunity to educate, and I had failed. All I'd done was to make them laugh all the louder. I had aided and abetted social backwardness. The scene changed. He lay in the sun, and this time I saw a trail of smoke left by a sky-riding plane lingering in the sky. A large woman in a Kelly green dress stood near me, saying, Oh, oh. I turned and faced the map, removing the doll from my pocket and tossing it upon the desk. My stomach surged to die for such a thing. I picked it up with an unclean feeling, looked at the frilled paper, the joined cardboard feet hung down, pulling the paper legs in elastic folds, a construction of tissue, cardboard, and glue. And yet I felt a hatred as for something alive. What had made it seem to dance? Its cardboard hands were doubled into fists, the fingers outlined in orange paint. And I noticed that it had two faces, one on either side of the disc of cardboard, and both grinning. Clifton's voice came to me as he spieled his directions for making it dance, and I held it by the feet and stretched its neck, seeing it crumple and slide forward. I tried again, turning its other face around. It gave a tired flounce, shook itself, and fell in a heap. Go on, entertain me, I said, giving it a stretch. You entertained the crowd. I turned it around. One face grinned as broadly as the other. It had grinned back at Clifton as it grinned forward at the crowd and the entertainment had been his death. It had still grinned when I played the fool and spat upon it, and it was still grinning when Clifton ignored me. Then I saw a fine black thread and pulled it from the frilled paper. There was a loop tied in the end. I slipped it over my finger and stood stretching it taut, and this time it danced. Clifton had been making it dance all the time, and the black thread had been invisible. Why didn't you hit him, I asked myself. Try to break his jaw. Why didn't you hurt him and save him? 
You might have started a fight and both of you would have been arrested with no shooting. But why had he resisted the cop anyway? He had been arrested before. He knew how far to go with a cop. What had the cop said to make him angry enough to lose his head? And suddenly it occurred to me that he might have been angry before he resisted, before he'd even seen the cop. My breath became short. I felt myself go weak. What if he believed I'd sold out? It was a sickening thought. I sat holding myself as though I might break. For a moment I weighed the idea, but it was too big for me. I could only accept responsibility for the living, not for the dead. My mind backed away from the notion. The incident was political. I looked at the doll thinking the political equivalent of such entertainment is death. But that's too broad a definition. Its economic meaning? That the life of a man is worth the sale of a two-bit paper doll. But that didn't kill the idea that my anger helped speed him on to death. And still my mind fought against it. For what had I to do with the crisis that had broken his integrity? What had I to do with his selling the dolls in the first place? And finally, I had to give that up too. I was no detective, and politically, individuals were without meaning. The shooting was all that was left of him now. Clifton had chosen to plunge out of history, and, except for the picture it made in my mind's eye, only the plunge was recorded. And that was the only important thing. I sat rigid, as though waiting to hear the explosions again, fighting against the weight that seemed to pull me down. I heard the clothesline peddler's bell. What would I tell the committee when the newspaper accounts were out? To hell with them. How would I explain the dolls? But why should I say anything? What could we do to fight back? That was my worry. The bell tolled again in the yard below. I looked at the doll. I could think of no justification for Clifton's having sold the dolls. But there was justification enough for giving him a public funeral. And I seized upon the idea now as though it would save my life. Even though I wanted to turn away from it as I wanted to turn from Clifton's crumpled body on the walk. But the odds against us were too great for such weakness. We had to use every politically effective weapon against them. Clifton understood that. He had to be buried and I knew of no relatives. Someone had to see that he was placed in the ground. Yes, the dolls were obscene and his act a betrayal, but he was only a salesman, not the inventor. And it was necessary to make it known that the meaning of his death was greater than the incident or the object that caused it, both as a means of avenging him and of preventing other such deaths. Yes, and of attracting lost members back into the ranks. It would be ruthless, but a ruthlessness in the interest of brotherhood. For we had only our minds and bodies as against the other side's vast power. We had to make the most of what we had. For they had the power to use a paper doll first to destroy his integrity, and then as an excuse for killing him. All right so we'll use his funeral to put his integrity together again, for that's all he had had or wanted. And now I could see the doll only vaguely, and drops of moisture were thudding down upon its absorbent paper. I was bent over, staring when the knock came at the door, and I jumped as at a shot, sweeping the doll into my pocket and hastily wiping my eyes. Come in, I said. The door opened slowly, 
A group of youth members crowded forward, their faces a question. The girls were crying. Is it true, they said. That he is dead, yes, I said, looking among them. Yes, but why? It was a case of provocation and murder, I said, my emotions beginning to turn to anger. They stood there, their faces questioning me. He's dead, a girl said, her voice without conviction. Dead. But what do they mean about his selling dolls, a tall youth said. I don't know, I said. I only know that he was shot down, unarmed. I know how you feel. I saw him fall. Take me home, a girl screamed. Take me home. I stepped forward and caught her, a little brown thing in bobby socks, holding her against me. No, we can't go home, I said. None of us. We've got to fight. I'd like to get out into the air and forget it, if I ever could. What we want is not tears, but anger. We must remember now that we are fighters, and in such incidents, we must see the meaning of our struggle. We must strike back. I want each of you to round up all the members you can. We've got to make our reply. One of the girls was still crying piteously when they went out, but they were moving quickly. Come on, Shirley, they said, taking the girl from my shoulder. I tried to get in touch with headquarters, but again, I was unable to reach anyone. I called the Thonian, but there was no answer. So I called a committee of the district's leading members, and we moved slowly ahead on our own. I tried to find the youth who was with Clifton, but he had disappeared. Members were set on streets with cans to solicit funds for his burial. A committee of three old women went to the morgue to claim his body. We distributed black-boarded leaflets denouncing the police commissioner. Preachers were notified to have their congregations send letters of protest to the mayor. The story spread. A photograph of Clifton was sent to the Negro papers and published. People were stirred and angry. Street meetings were organized. And, released by the action from my indecision, I threw everything I had into organizing the funeral, though moving in a kind of numb suspension. I didn't go to bed for two days and nights, but caught catnaps at my desk. I ate very little. The funeral was arranged to attract the largest number. Instead of holding it in a church or a chapel, we selected Mount Morris Park, and an appeal went out for all former members to join the funeral march. It took place on a Saturday, in the heat of the afternoon. There was a thin overcast of clouds, and hundreds of people formed for the procession. I went around giving orders and encouragement in a feverish daze, and yet seeming to observe it all from off to one side. Brothers and sisters turned up whom I hadn't seen since my return— and members from downtown and outlying districts. I watched them with surprise as they gathered and wondered at the depths of their sorrow as the lines began to form. There were half-draped flags and black banners. There were black-boarded signs that read, Brother Todd Clifton, our hope shot down. There was a higher drum corps with crepe-draped drums. There was a band of thirty pieces. There were no cars and very few flowers. It was a slow procession, and the band played sad, romantic military marches. And when the band was silent, the drum corps beat the time on drums with muffled heads. It was hot and explosive. And delivery men avoided the district, and the police details were increased in number. And up and down the streets, people looked out of their apartment windows, and men and boys stood on the roofs in the thin, veiled sun. I marched at the head with the old community leaders. It was a slow march, and as I looked back from time to time, I could see young zoot suitors, hep cats, and men in overalls, and pool hall gamblers stepping into the procession. 
Men came out of barbershops with lathered faces, their neckcloths hanging to watch and comment in hushed voices. And I wondered, are they all Clifton's friends? Or is it just for the spectacle, the slow-paced music? A hot wind blew from behind me, bringing the sick Swedish odor like the smell of some female dogs in season. I looked back. The sun shone down on a mass of unbared heads, and above flags and banners and shining horns I could see the cheap gray coffin moving high upon the shoulders of Clifton's tallest companions, who from time to time shifted it smoothly onto the others. They bore him high and they bore him proudly, and there was an angry sadness in their eyes. The coffin floated like a heavily loaded ship in a channel, winding its way slowly above the bowed and submerged heads. I could hear the steady rolling of the drums with muffled snares, and all other sounds were suspended in silence. Behind, the tramp of feet. Ahead, the crowds lining the curbs for blocks. There were tears and muffled sobs and many hard, red eyes. We moved ahead. We wound through the poorest streets at first, a black image of sorrow, then turned into 7th Avenue and down and over to Lenox. Then I hurried with the leading brothers to the park in a cab. A brother in the park department had opened the lookout tower, and a crude platform of planks and ranked sawhorses had been erected beneath the black iron bell. And when the procession started into the park, we were standing high above, waiting. At our signal, he struck the bell, and I could feel my eardrums throbbing with the old, hollow, gut-vibrant doom, dong, doom. Looking down, I could see them, winding upward in a mass to the muffled sound of the drums. Children stopped playing on the grass to stare, and nurses at the nearby hospital came out on the roof to watch, their white uniforms glowing in the now unveiled sun like lilies and crowds approached the park from all directions. The muffled drums now beating, now steadily rolling, spread a dead silence upon the air, a prayer for the unknown soldier. And looking down, I felt a lostness. Why were they here? Why had they found us? Because they knew Clifton? Or for the occasion his death gave them to express their protestations, a time and place to come together, to stand touching and sweating and breathing and looking in a common direction. Was either explanation adequate in itself? Did it signify love or politicized hate? And could politics ever be an expression of love? Over the park, the silence spread from the slow, muffled rolling of the drums, the crunching of footsteps on the walks. Then somewhere in the procession, an old, plaintive, masculine voice rose in a song, wavering, stumbling in the silence at first alone, until in the band a euphonium horn fumbled for the key and took up the air, one catching and rising above the other, and the other pursuing two black pigeons rising above a skull-white barn to tumble and rise through still blue air. And for a few bars, the pure, sweet tone of the horn and the old man's husky baritone sang a duet in the hot, heavy silence. There's many a thousand gone. And standing high up over the park, something fought in my throat. It was a song from the past, the past of the, the campus and the still earlier past of home. And now some of the older ones in the mass were joining in. I hadn't thought of it as a march before, but now they were 
marching to its slowly paced rhythm up the hill. I looked for the euphonium player and saw a slender black man with his face turned toward the sun, singing through the upturned bells of the horn, and several yards behind, marching beside the young men floating the coffin upward, I looked into the face of the old man who had aroused the song and felt a twinge of envy. It was a worn, old, yellow face, and his eyes were closed, and I could see a knife welt around his upturned neck as his throat threw out the song. He sang with his whole body, phrasing each verse as naturally as he walked, his voice rising above all the others, blending with that of the lucid horn. I watched him now wet-eyed, the sun hot upon my head, and I felt a wonder at the singing mass. I felt as though the song had been there all the time, and he knew it and aroused it, and I knew that I had known it too and had failed to release it out of a vague, nameless shame or fear. But he had known and aroused it. Even white brothers and sisters were joining in. I looked into that face, trying to plumb its secret, but... It told me nothing. I looked at the coffin and the marchers, listening to them, and yet realizing that I was listening to something within myself, and for a second I heard the shattering stroke of my heart. Something deep had shaken the crowd, and the old man and the man with the horn had done it. They had touched upon something deeper than protest or religion, though now images of all the church meetings of my life welled up within me with much suppressed and forgotten anger. But that was past, and too many of those now reaching the top of the mountain and spreading, massed together, had never shared it, and some had been born in other lands. And yet, all were touched. The song had aroused us all. It was not the words, for they were all the same old slave-born words. It was as though he changed the emotion beneath the words, while yet the old, longing, resigned, transcended emotion still sounded above now deepened by that something for which the theory of brotherhood had given me no name. I stood there trying to contain it as they brought Todd Clifton's coffin into the tower and slowly up the spiral stairs. They set it down upon the platform and I looked at the shape of the cheap gray coffin, and all I could remember was the sound of his name. The song had ended. Now the top of the little mountain bristled with banners, horns, and uplifted faces, I could look straight down Fifth Avenue to 125th Street, where policemen were lined behind an array of hot dog wagons and good-humor carts. And among the carts I saw a peanut vendor standing beneath a street lamp upon which pigeons were gathered. And now I saw him stretch out his arms with his palms turned upward, and suddenly he was covered, head, shoulders, and outflung arms with fluttering, feasting birds. Someone nudged me, and I started. It was time for final words, but I had no words, and I'd never been to a brotherhood funeral and had no idea of a ritual, but they were waiting. I stood there alone. There was no microphone to support me, only the coffin before me upon the backs of its wobbly carpenter's horses. I looked down into their sun-swept faces, digging for the words and feeling a futility about it all and an anger. For this they gathered by thousands. What were they waiting to hear? Why had they come? For what reason that was different from that which had made the red-cheeked boy thrill at Clifton's falling to the earth? What did they want, and what could they do? Why hadn't they come when they could have stopped it all?
What are you waiting for me to tell you? I shouted suddenly, my voice strangely crisp on the windless air. What good will it do? What if I say this isn't a funeral, that it's a holiday celebration, that if you stick around, the band will end up playing, damn it the hell, the fun's all over. Or do you expect to see some magic? The dead rise and walk again. Go home! He's dead as he'll ever die. That's the end in the beginning, and there's no encore. There will be no miracles, and there's no one here to preach a sermon. So go home, forget him. He's inside the box, newly dead. Go home and don't think about him. He's dead, and you've got all you can to do to think about you. I paused. They were whispering and looking forward. I told you, go home, I shouted. But you keep standing there. Don't you know it's, it's hot out here in the sun? So what if you wait for what little I can tell you? Can I say in 20 minutes what was building 21 years and ended in 20 seconds? What are you waiting for? When all I can tell you is his name. And when I tell you, what will you know that you didn't know already except perhaps his name? They were listening intently, and as though looking not at me, but at the pattern of my voice upon the air. All right, you do the listening in the sun, and I'll try to tell you in the sun. Then you go home and forget it. Forget it. His name was Clifton, and they shot him down. His name was Clifton, and he was tall, and some folks thought him handsome, and though he didn't believe it, I think he was. His name was Clifton and his face was black, and his hair was thick, with tight-rolled curls, or called them naps, or kinks. He's dead, uninterested, and except to a few young girls, it doesn't matter. Have you got it? Can you see him? Think of your brother or your cousin John. His lips were thick with an upward curve at the corners. He often smiled. He had good eyes and a pair of fast hands, and he had a heart. He thought about things, and he felt deeply. I won't call him noble, because what's such a word to do with one of us? His name was Clifton. Todd Clifton. And like any man, he was born of woman to live a while and fall and die. So that's his tale to the minute. His name was Clifton, and for a while he lived among us and aroused a few hopes in the young manhood of man. And we who knew him loved him, and he died. So why are you waiting? You've heard it all. Why wait for more when all I can do is repeat it? They stood. They listened. They gave no sign. Very well, so I'll tell you. His name was Clifton, and he was young, and he was a leader, and when he fell, there was a hole in the heel of his sock. And when he stretched forward, he seemed not as tall as when he stood. So he died. And we who loved him are gathered here to mourn him. It's as simple as that, and as short as that. His name was Clifton, and he was black, and they shot him. Isn't that enough to tell? Isn't it all you need to know? Isn't that enough to appease your thirst for drama and send you home to sleep it off? Go take a drink and forget it, or read it in the daily news. His name was Clifton, and they shot him, and I was there to see him fall, so I know it as I know it. Here are the facts. He was standing and he fell. He fell and he kneeled. He kneeled and he bled. He bled and he died. He fell in a heap like any man and his blood spilled out like any blood, red as any blood, wet as any blood, reflecting the sky and the buildings and the birds and the trees, or your face if you'd looked into its dulling mirror and it dried in the sun as blood dries. That's 
all. They spilled his blood and he bled. They cut him down and he died. The blood flowed on the walk in a pool, gleamed a while, and after a while became dull, then dusty, then dried. That's the story and that's how it ended. It's an old story and there's been too much blood to excite you. Besides, it's only important when it fills the veins of a living man. Aren't you tired of such stories? Aren't you sick of the blood? Then why listen? Why don't you go? It's hot out here. There's the odor of embalming fluid. The beer is cold in the taverns. The saxophones will be mellow at the Savoy. Plenty good laughing lies will be told in the barbershops and the beauty parlors. And there will be sermons in 200 churches in the cool of the evening and plenty of laughs at the movies. Go listen to Amos and Andy and forget it. Here you have only the same old story. There's not even a young wife up here in red to mourn him. There's nothing here to pity. No one to break down and shout. Nothing to give you that good old frightened feeling. The story's too short and too simple. His name was Clifton, Todd Clifton. He was unarmed and his death was as senseless as his life was futile. He had struggled for brotherhood on a hundred street corners and he thought it would make him more human. But he died like any dog in a road. All right, I called out, feeling desperate. It wasn't the way I wanted it to go. It wasn't political. Brother Jack probably wouldn't approve of it at all. But I had to keep on going as I could. Listen to me standing up on this so-called mountain, I shouted. Let me tell it as it truly was. His name was Todd Clifton, and he was full of illusions. He thought he was a man when he was only Todd Clifton. He was shot for a simple mistake of judgment, and he bled, and his blood dried, and shortly the crowd trampled out the stains. It was a normal mistake, of which many are guilty. He thought he was a man, and that men were not meant to be pushed around. But it was hot downtown, and he forgot his history. He forgot the time and the place. He lost his hold on reality. There was a cop and a waiting audience, but he was Todd Clifton. And cops are everywhere. The cop? What about him? He was a cop, a good citizen. But this cop had an itching finger and an eager ear for a word that rhymed with trigger, and when Clifton fell, he had found it. The police special spoke its lines and the rhyme was completed. Just look around you. Look at what he made. Look inside you and feel his awful power. It was perfectly natural. The blood ran like blood in a comic book killing, on a comic book street, in a comic book town, on a comic book day, in a comic book world. Todd Clifton's one with the ages. But what's that to do with you in this heat under this veiled sun? Now he's part of history. And he has received his true freedom. Didn't they scribble his name on a standardized pad? His race, colored, religion, unknown, probably born Baptist, place of birth, U.S., some southern town, next of kin, unknown, address, unknown, occupation, unemployed, cause of death, be specific, resisting reality in the form of a thirty-eight caliber revolver in the hands of an arresting officer, on 42nd between the library and the subway, in the heat of the afternoon, of gunshot wounds received from three bullets, fired at three paces, one bullet entering the right ventricle of the heart and lodging there, the other severing the spinal ganglia, traveling downward to lodge in the pelvis, the other 
breaking through the back and traveling God knows where. Such was the short, bitter life of Brother Todd Clifton. Now he's in this box with the bolts tightened down. He's in the box. <laughs> and we're in there with him. And when I've told you this, you can go. It's dark in this box, and it's crowded. It has a cracked ceiling and a clogged-up toilet in the hall that has rats and roaches, and it's far, far too expensive a dwelling. The air is bad, and it'll be cold this winter. Todd Clifton is crowded, and he needs the room. Tell them to get out of the box. That's what he would say if you could hear him. Tell them to get out of the box and to go teach the cops to forget that rhyme. Tell them to teach them that when they call you nigger to make a rhyme with trigger, it makes the gun backfire. So there you have it. In a few hours, Todd Clifton will be cold bones in the ground. And don't be fooled, for these bones shall not rise again. You and I will still be in the box. <laughs> I don't know if Todd Clifton had a soul. I only know the ache that I feel in my heart, my sense of loss. I don't know if you have a soul. I only know that you are men of flesh and blood, and that blood will spill and flesh grow cold. I do not know if all cops are poets, but I know that all cops carry guns with triggers. And I know, too, how we are labeled. So in the name of Brother Clifton, beware of the triggers. Go home, keep cool, stay safe away from the sun. Forget him. When he was alive, he was our hope. But why worry over a hope that's dead? Oh, there's only one thing left to tell you, and I've already told you. His name was Todd Clifton. He believed in brotherhood. He aroused our hopes, and he died. I couldn't go on. Below, they were waiting hands and handkerchiefs shading their eyes. A preacher stepped up and read something out of his Bible, and I stood looking at the crowd with a sense of failure. I had let it get away from me, had been unable to bring in the political issues, and they stood there sun-beaten and sweat-bathed, listening to me repeat what was known. Now the preacher had finished, and someone signaled the bandmaster, and there was solemn music as the pallbearers carried the coffin down the spiraling stairs. The crowd stood still as we walked slowly through. I could feel the bigness of it and the unknownness of it and the pent-up tension. Whether of tears or anger, I couldn't tell but as we walked through and down the hill to the hearse, I could feel it. The crowd sweated and throbbed, and though it was silent, there were many things directed toward me through its eyes. At the curb were the hearse and a few cars, and in a few minutes they were loaded, and the crowd was still standing, looking on as we carried Todd Clifton away. And as I took one last look, I saw not a crowd, but the set faces of individual men and women. We drove away, and when the car stopped moving, there was a grave, and we placed him in it. The grave diggers sweated heavily and knew their business, and their brogue was Irish. They filled the grave quickly, and we left. Todd Clifton.
was underground. I returned through the streets as tired as though I'd dug the grave myself, alone. I felt confused and listless moving through the crowds that seemed to boil along in a kind of mist, as though the thin, humid clouds had thickened and settled directly above our heads. I wanted to go somewhere, to some cool place to rest without thinking. But there was still too much to be done. Plans had to be made. The crowd's emotion had to be organized. I crept along, walking a southern walk in southern weather, closing my eyes from time to time against the dazzling reds, yellows, and greens of cheap sport shirts and summer dresses. The crowd boiled, sweated, heaved. Women with shopping bags, men with highly polished shoes. Even down south, it always shined their shoes. Shined shoes, shooed, shines. It rang in my head. In 8th Avenue, the market carts were parked hub to hub along the curb, improvised canopies shading the withering fruits and vegetables. I could smell the stench of decaying cabbage. A watermelon huckster stood in the shade beside his truck, holding up a long slice of orange meated melon, crying his wares with horse appeals to nostalgia, memories of childhood, green shade, and summer coolness. Oranges, coconuts, alligator pears lay in neat piles on little tables, I passed, winding my way through the slowly moving crowd. Stale and wilted flowers rejected downtown, blazed feverishly on a cart like glamorous rags festering beneath a futile spray from a punctured fruit juice can. The crowd were boiling figures seen through steaming glass from inside a washing machine. And in the streets, the mounted police detail stood looking on, their eyes noncommittal beneath the short, polished visors of their caps, their bodies slanting forward, reins slackly alert, men and horses of flesh imitating men and horses of stone. Todd Clifton's Todd, I thought. The hucksters cried above the traffic sounds, and I seemed to hear them from a distance, unsure of what they said. In a side street, children with warped tricycles were parading along the walk, carrying one of the signs. Brother Todd Clifton, our hope shot down. And through the haze, I again felt the tension. There was no denying it. It was there, and something had to be done before it simmered away in the heat. And we will pick up on Chapter 22 next Friday. Context of White Supremacy, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. If you would like to participate, the number to dial 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. All the folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. If you have any thoughts on what we heard in the second audio segment, proceed. Love you. Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, yeah. Oh, man. It's a great, uh, great chapter. Um, thought about, you know, a lot of things. I thought about uh, the way white people use words and um I thought about how they use the term 
resisting. And um, I know that black people talk about that a lot, talk about resistance um, to racism. And, you know, we have the, the black fish and things like that. And they have taken that word and they have associated it with something negative that you should not resist when you should. And they, they put it as though you should never resist, that there's never, like you shouldn't resist a, even a false arrest, which to me, even using that language is also brainwashing everyone, especially black people, to look at resistance as a bad thing, um, which to me, again, is associated with even us resisting racism. And then I think about fair and how they associate that uh, with whiteness. And it's like, why are you, um, why is your skin fair just because it's pink or peach? Like, you know what I mean? But that's just, you know, trying to, trying to uh, brainwash. And uh, even the term revolt, like, you know, we use revolt for um, revolting from racism and people who, the victims of um, the terrorism known as uh, the, the slavery from the, from the 1800s, um, you know, they revolted, they say, you know, Nat Turner and some other people, they revolted. And yet that term also means something very, very negative and something disgusting to, to be um, revolting. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, it was from the previous, um, from the, from the previous segment about another con game that they've obviously been, um, that they have all obviously been, um, running, uh, on non-white people for very, very long, certainly since, you know, this book was published like in the fifties, uh, that the, uh, the terrorist, the, the race soldier, who uh, had sex with uh, the, the main character, she said that you, she said that you, um, before you was talking about minorities, um, and now you're, you know, talking about women's issues or something like that, um, just calling us minorities when they know good and well uh, that we're not the minority. It's, it's, it's more Are you still with us, Ivy? You still with us, Ivy? Not hearing you. You still there, Ivy? She might be having some technical difficulties. Uh, if you, I reckon if you get your audio situation corrected, uh, you can just let us know. If you have to hang up and dial back in, I'll keep an uh, eye on the switchboard so that we can bring you back in. But we are not hearing you, Ivy. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Folks spectating, no thoughts on the what we heard in... Can, can, oh, I'm sorry. Brother, I, I'd like to uh, offer, offer go, something. Go ahead, Brother Jay. Um, so just for Tom's sake, um, kind of ratcheted down the two main points. So in this, 
middle part of uh, chapter 20 and then through chapter 21, I kind of saw the main character going back and forth in his relationship to black people. Um, they kind of came alive. He noticed the two teenagers in the subway. He was fascinated by them. He was very alienated from them, but they were within his gaze, within his ability to view. And um, I noticed that as well with the crowd. At first, the crowd was so alienated from him. He was angry with it. And then he noted that they became individual faces. So I think the, just generally, I don't know if I'm fully correct, but I think he's having some type of relationship with the black social reality. He also used the word veil. He said uh, the veiled hot sun or the hot sun in our veiled world or something to that effect. And that word veil reminds me of Du Bois. And it's a very common notion, especially with where he's at at the time. And so I wanted to bring that up. And then the second point uh, is this broader point about the different ways in which he captures what I call the horror of blackness and that the, the the monstrosity of it. Um, and I think that point at the song when he was talking about how this happens all over and over again is a good example of that. But then he has this point where he talks about how um, all these men were touched. The song had aroused us all. It was not the words, but they were all the same old slave born words. And then he talks about how um, something that the brotherhood had not given me a name. The theory of the brotherhood had not given me a name. And that's the horror of blackness I think he's tapped into when he was with the crowd. And he said the brotherhood's ideology didn't give him a name for it. And I think we don't have a name for it. And it's hard to articulate because blackness imposes these things on us. Like Christina Sharp writes in her book, where language um, is unattainable, it's unstable. You know, when you're in a slave ship, when you put in greater confinement, when you're constantly dispossessed, communication between blacks is under assault. And so it's hard for us to communicate that shared pain. And uh, that's, that's all I wanted to share. Much obliged, Brother Jay in St. Louis. Uh, great commentary. Uh, I think to your point, the first point that you made about perhaps a shifting relationship between the protagonist and the other uh, black characters, I think there's so many points in the book where the protagonist exemplifies a lot of anti-blackness when he's looking at other black people. I'm remembering the Battle Royale at the beginning, uh, the scene when he first sees some of the black vets at the Golden Day, he immediately associates them with the chain gang. Like there are lots of times where he sees black people and just makes, you know, some sort of disparaging comment about them. This continues even when he gets to New York. But the repeated scenes uh, in this chapter where he's looking at groups of black people and then describing in extraordinary detail, you know, feet, their features and demeanor and dress and, and, really seeing them as opposed to whatever warped anti-black uh, visions uh, that he had of them before. I think that's a, a really important point that came through in uh, this chapter. Uh, maybe even saw some of that when, when the eviction was taking place, that kind of going back and forth between how he's viewing the couple. Uh, other folks who have a hand up have commentary that they want to share? Folks, solid for the time being. 
I'll be sure to get in a few of my points. Uh, let's see, for the chapters that we've read, I guess before I get to specific chapters, uh, question, there are a number of different items. So now we have our Brother Tarp's uh, shackle. We have the Sambo doll. We have the Jolly Nigger Bank. Lots of these little trinkets. I said he was going to be accumulating them. Now, what does this menagerie of uh, little, you know, nigger figurines and such, what does that mean? Why does the character keep getting stuck with these? I gifted these items uh, in some cases where he's lugging them all around. What is Ellison communicating with these objects? Something to think about. Uh, so getting to my notes specifically for, so I guess this is the end of chapter 20 and then uh, 21. Let's see. The enforcement officers, race soldiers, after they've killed Brother Todd, uh, they call him Junior not once but twice. Not a man, Junior. And he had said uh, in the previous chapters when he had the tragic arrangement with the white woman, he said when he was exiting that he thought the man or the men would be downstairs awaiting him, but that wasn't the case. But yeah, Junior, not a man. Next. Uh, wow. The plunging out of history. Lots of details. This is at least the third time around that this is being discussed. And I think he gives a lot of detail about what does he mean when he's saying uh, plunging out of history. Uh, so he says, why had he chosen, talking about Brother Todd, why had he chosen to step off the platform and fall beneath the train? Why did he choose to plunge into nothingness, into the void of faceless faces, of soundless voices lying outside of history? Skipping a sentence or two. For history records the patterns of men's lives. They say who slept with whom and with what results, who fought and who won and who lived to lie about it afterwards. All things, it is said, are duly recorded. All things of importance, that is. Very important passage, uh, I think, where he's getting right to. I think what a lot of listeners uh, inferred from this, you know, being plunged out of history. And I think it's especially important that this notion, when it's first mentioned, uh, Brother Todd Clifton connects it to violence. And uh, it might be that, you know, counter-violence, him uh, retaliating. Uh, against an enforcement official, uh, recognizing that a black person who does that, whites probably will not record those deeds, uh, or if they do, they will not be recorded correctly. Uh, continuing. Let's see, so this is all still in chapter 20. Yeah, I thought it was amazing the detail that he goes into uh, in watching these three uh, black boys uh, reminded me so much of Detroit Red uh, before he transformed to uh, El Haj Malik Shabazz. Uh, we read uh, his autobiography on the book club some years back for the 50 year anniversary of his or not anniversary, but 50 years after his assassination. But uh, I, that, that passage stuck out for so many uh, reasons and him really looking at them because uh, he says, I'd never seen their like before uh, and really paying attention. What's motivating them to even dress like this and even reminding all the details from Minister Malcolm 
not being seen, being a victim of racism, white supremacy, doing all of this to 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 pretend to inflate your black masculinity uh, in a system of white terrorism that denies your manhood completely. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> I thought it was a great question when he's talking about these three boys and he says he describes them like one of these African sculptures distorted in the interest of design. Well, what design and whose? Great use of uh, rhetorical question within the narrative uh, for chapter 21. Wow, the funeral. Very interesting. I guess if you all want to contrast this to some of the other speeches that we've heard, there's so many of them at this point. His first first speech to the Brotherhood, uh, Reverend Barbie's uh, speech. Uh, let's see his speech at the Battle Royal. There have been so many different speeches that we've heard. Uh, I think this one is substantially different than any that we've heard before. If you just want to think and, and compare and contrast uh, from the different speeches that we've heard to his funeral for uh, Brother Todd Clifton. Uh, let's see from chapter 21. When he says, when he's kind of reflecting on his confrontation brief with Brother Todd, who's selling the Sambos, he says, all I'd done was to make them laugh all the louder. I had aided and abetted social backwardness. Uh, best to minimize conflict with another non-white person. I always say if you, you know, think that you're less confused about racism, definitely make sure you're minimizing uh, conflict. Uh, might be a different way of processing some of that. Uh, let's see. Yeah, when he says, uh, when he's talking about the Sambo doll, uh, I turned and faced the map, removing the doll from my pocket and tossing it upon my desk. My stomach surged to die for such a thing. I picked it up with an unclean feeling, looked at the frilled paper, cardboard feet hung down, pulling the paper legs in elastic folds, uh, where he talks later that this is going to be stored with his uh, shackle. That's one, you know, just kind of keep that in mind where he's collecting all of these items. Uh, why uh, would he be doing such a thing uh, when he skips down and, and he says, talking about brother Todd, that his death uh, entertainment has been, uh, and their entertainment had been his death. That's the way that he writes it. I think that happens uh, daily, hourly in the system of white supremacy, whether it's Trayvon Martin, uh, Tra uh, Eric Garner, Michael Brown Jr., Ayanna Stanley Jones, insert name, uh, whoever it happens to be for that this week, this month, Sandra Bland, uh, the entertainment of the week. We'll get a hashtag. Maybe we'll get to go out and pretend uh, in some protests. Whites love this sort of thing, making theater of black death. We've talked about this repeatedly. I think there's supposed to be a new documentary series coming out about uh, Trayvon Martin. Skittles got Skittles stocks got to be going through the roof. Uh, continuing. Uh, and even if I could get a quick pause for as popular as this book is with whites, there's no way you could have whites saying, oh, I didn't know police killing niggers was a problem because it's in this book and it's not in this book like he's talking like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's, he's talking like, man, this is really old. Police shooting black people and Written in 1952, it sounds like he, you know, this is a daily recurring theme. There's no way you can have whites walking around. Same thing that I say, white people are not ignorant about racism. Totally impossible.
Continuing. Uh, about uh, Ivy had, had asked before about being angry. And I said that this book, Ralph Ellison, I think is very angry about the system of white supremacy. And I think that comes through uh, on every page of this uh, book. Uh, this sentence here where he says he'd been arrested before talking about Brother Todd Clifton. He knew how, to, how far to go with a cop. What had the cop said to make him angry enough to lose his head? And suddenly it occurred to me that he might have been angry before he resisted, before he'd even seen the cop. My breath became short. I felt myself go weak. What if he believed I'd sold out? Real important passage for a lot of reasons, because I think Brother Clifton was angry beforehand. I, I, as I said, if you go back uh, and read the portion where they have their brawl with Roz the Exhorter and he, Brother Clifton and the narrator are talking after all that's over, it sounds like some of what Roz has said resonated with him, that he was having some second thoughts or questions, at least. Uh, it's just something to think of. And the anger, particularly being angry, I think there's so much of that that comes through. Uh, just talking about anger throughout the text. Let's see. The next time it comes up, I stepped forward and caught her a little brown thing in bobby socks holding her against me no we can't go home i said none of us we've got to fight i'd like to get out into the air and forget if i ever could what we want is not tears but anger i highlighted the word specifically and then uh the next one when he's this is a part of his uh speech to the crowd uh he says uh, his name was clifton and for a while he lived among us and aroused a few hopes in the young manhood of men. I thought that also uh, really important, especially uh, the focus on black males uh, being victims of, in this case, uh, lethal violence, uh, state-sanctioned violence, uh, and that black manhood being denied. I think some of the callers even talked about that, uh, saying that brother, brother Todd Clifton, and I think that even gets to I think we talked earlier about Brother Todd Clifton being described as being virile and handsome. And there was so much detail when Brother Todd Clifton was introduced, uh, really masculine, uh, manly black male. And to have him gunned down, I think that might be a part of the effect of dramatizing uh, the, the impotence or the inability of black manhood to be expressed in a system of white supremacy if that makes sense. Uh, I'll stop there. Uh, other folks have comments, questions uh, that they want to get in? Yes, may I be here? Mr. Demery Ford? Uh, yes. Uh, just thinking about uh, what you just said uh, and the death of Todd Clifton. Um. The narrator mentioned, you know, when he was uh, speaking at the funeral, that he was shot down like a dog in the street. And, you know, it's another animal reference, but it's accurate when you think about the regard for humanity that the police department or the white uh, race soldiers 
you know, have towards uh, black males. Um, and you think about, he said that one guy, I guess one of the witnesses was saying that Todd Clifton was uh, uh, handy with his fist, so he knew how to fight. Maybe he took a couple of swings at the policeman. But then you think about other instances today where uh, there was a white man that uh, went for, he was wrestling with three policemen, went for one of them's gun. They all uh, had to subdue him. Um, he was handcuffed and taken in with, you know, no harm done to him. But the slightest thing that a black person does, like Eric uh, Garner, you know, the slightest little thing, you know, could cost you your life. Uh, the guy that was sitting in the car that had a gun told police he had a gun. He was a uh, he had a uh, permit to carry, but he was still gunned down. It's just uh, a different set of laws that govern uh, black men in America. And uh, when the young girl asked, "What is that? What was it about the dolls?" And the narrator <clears throat> basically just ignored her question, you know, and, you know, um, but I think he should have probably taken time, you know, to say, you know, exactly what happened. If you were there, you were an eyewitness. The man was selling dolls. Whatever happened, he should not have lost his life concerning the fact of, you know, selling some stupid, uh, uh, dolls. <clears throat> and the whole thing about that, uh, I guess, what would you call that? Uh, no, the, uh, memorabilia, the, uh, slavery memorabilia. Um, uh, just like when he was in Mary's house and he saw the, uh, disgusting image of the, the bank, with the black man with his hand out, you put the coin in his hand or something. And, you know, he broke it <clears throat> and he tried to get rid of it <clears throat> everywhere. He tried to drop it off. Somebody would say something to him. It just shows that no matter what position in life you have, it's hard to get past those old images, those, uh, racist, uh, memorabilia, uh, those icons or whatever, you know, how they create that image of a black man, you can't get rid of it. It's always there. He could not uh, get rid of that broken jaw. And just like the Sambo dolls, you know, down to the end, uh, brother Todd Clifton had dedicated his life to try to uh, uh, further the cause of black people and then he ended up getting shot down the streets for selling, you know, some uh, memorabilia that was offensive. So it, it, when you look at the past and the present, you know, it shows the uh, disregard and insignificance of black lives in America. And it's really a sad situation. And the only thing basically that we can do where I draw the line is 
I'm not going to make let them make me pay for the racism that they practice against me. That's where I got to draw the line. So, uh, Brother Clifton is dead. He's he's uh, doing his funeral. He really doesn't have anything to say. You know, said he lived. He gave us some hope, and he died. You know, you, yeah, you could think about the the state of mind he was in at the time. He was traumatized. Uh, he witnessed the act, and <clears throat> it's just it's an over it's it's not really an over dramatization. It's a accurate uh, dramatization of you know what we go through as black men in America. And I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks. For much obliged mr demry for uh it in my view it sounds like that chunk right there sounds like somebody could have written that in 2018 or 2015 uh just the this is every day and i'm so sick of seeing this on a constant basis in fact i don't even need to give you the details just insert the name and black person killed by police adjust the date and time we'll just have boilerplate t-shirts and everything because you know you can set your watch by it happens all the time uh ivy did you want to ask your question about pam and we can get the yoga question tomorrow we talk about yoga all the time did you want to get your pam question in maybe she it's not with us. Not just, I know she was having some audio issues earlier. Well, anywho, we will nab all of the questions tomorrow. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, remain safe. Uh, the holiday shenanigans are going to continue all the way through the weekend, I am sure. So be mindful. Be sober. Alcohol did not serve the main character well in the text that we read this week. Apply that to your own counter-racist code. Certainly, if you're going to be out and about in a vehicle, even if you're doing some traveling for the so-called holiday, be sober if you are behind the wheel or if you're a passenger and be buckled up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on what has gone down last seven days. If you have any wacky, uh, quote unquote, holiday stories, uh, let's hear. Hopefully you were able to remain codified, uh, even if you were at some gatherings, cookouts, whatever it is. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim.
I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>